This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, one and all, to the 15th episode of Through the Years, the podcast where two men review Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning, but Matt... My co-host, Matt Feuerstein, and me, Trevor Dane, who's talking right now, it's a bit of a lie because for the first time ever, we have a guest. So it'll be three men this episode. And the guest we have, I mean, his list of uh, qualifications, his other projects, there's just there's too damn many of them. We can go through Joe versus the World, which just had its first new episode in forever. Um, this came out, dropped this last week with Justin Shapiro. Uh, that's one of the Podfather wrestling podcasts out there. There was also Wrestling Podmass, he wrote, which was an invaluable um, resource where on the old Voices of Wrestling site, well, the current Voices of Wrestling site, he just doesn't do it anymore, where he would review all, uh, all the wrestling podcasts hosted by wrestling personalities, and we miss it. It was I honestly listen to less of those podcasts now because Joe does not filter them. Okay, that's a spoiler. The guest's first name is Joe. I'm still in the middle of all the plugs for him because he was also has the Funtime Pro Wrestling Arcade video series, which you can see on YouTube, where he reviews all the different video game wrestling, all the different wrestling video games, and that's a fun video podcast. And finally, well, actually, wait, there's more. He is also the second ever guest on Between the Sheets and has been a guest on a billion other podcasts. And on top of that, his most recent project is on our archrival, our nemesis, the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. He hosts a freaking wrestling podcast, the five-star match game. It's Joe Gagne, is it? Oh, that'd be Gagne. Oh, 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 I see. I'm sorry. I've never met you before. Um, no, have we ever talked before here? Uh, no, there. you weren't. Actually, Joe gave me my first ever appearance on a podcast, which was horrific because I didn't plan for it. And I ended up panicking and reading just a blurb from a pro wrestling illustrated issue. <laughs> yeah, people really hated that episode. Yeah. I, I love that episode. That's well, that's that good for you, man. But Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. You've been nice enough to compliment the show. You've been, and obviously, I mean, there's no one better because you were actually at the show we're going to review today. And also, I oh. believe that um, that was a backhanded compliment that Trevor gave you, Joe, when he said that that was your first episode of Joe versus the World in forever. You've been slacking. Yeah, I mean, backhanded compliment. It had been literally forever, going by measurements of time. I, I can't, I can't escape the the harsh truth. And of course, I finally get that out, and someone's like, "Well, when's the next Funtime Arcade coming out?" So I'm like, well, "I can't please anyone." I'm a, I'm a busy, busy man. I mean, yeah, you have ki- a kid and a life, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, we don't, and we only get our show out like every three weeks. So, but now that that's depressing sentiment has been expressed, Joe. I guess the one thing we should ask is, how early did you get into Ring of Honor? It was pretty much day one for uh, for two reasons. One is that when uh, WCW and ECW went out of business in early 2001, you were kind of low on options to watch wrestling if you you know liked big time. That's why I started expanding. It's when I really got into Japanese wrestling and really started kind of diving into the indies. I was pretty heavy into reading the Death Valley Driver reviews at that point. They're, you know, live reviews of Jersey All-Pro, 
ECWA, a lot of the indies and whatnot. And I got a lot of comp tapes, including the, I don't know if anyone remembers, the West Side Comps tapes, which are like eight-hour tapes of, uh, you know, a bunch of Jersey All-Pro, uh, USA Pro, uh, all these federations. So I, like, I was familiar with the indie scene. In Ring of Honor, it was a case where I was like, wow, all these people are coming together under one fed. That's awesome. It wasn't a case where I discovered it later down the road and thought, oh, these are awesome wrestlers. From day one, it was like, wow, this sounds really cool. And especially when it was coming to Massachusetts, because the other reason was I had largely missed out on the, well, I did miss out on the ECW live experience. I discovered it in 1995 when I started college. Yes, I am that old. <laughs> and I never, you know, being in college, they ran shows usually in the Boston area, Revere and whatnot. I didn't really have a way to get there. And I was always kind of afraid I'd get like beat up if I went to an ECW show. I just <laughs> kind of had that feeling. And if that sounds alarmist, the mass transit incident did occur in Massachusetts. <laughs> so, and ironically, you go to a Ring of Honor show where they try and create a riot. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't feel safe anywhere. <laughs> but that, that was when I went, it was like, okay, this is kind of my chance. This is kind of the new ECW experience. I can't miss out on this. And I was at the first two uh, quote-unquote Boston shows. And I didn't miss a Massachusetts show until 2005, where I went to the Ted Petty Invitational that year, so I had a pretty good excuse. Yeah, that's and, a good choice. Uh, yeah, and um, it was pretty uh, regular live attendee for 2007, until 2007, because that was when we were in the, the double shot era. And the Friday Massachusetts show was always the lesser of the, uh, of the two that would run that weekend. Usually the other one was a big New York show. And being in Boston, running near Boston on a Friday, it was just horrific to get to. So I kind of dropped out from a live experience. But for the next probably year's worth of podcasts for you guys, I will have been at uh, a bunch of these shows. Um, you're probably the only person that I talked to that actually was at 2002 ROH shows. So, you know, for our, from our standpoint, I mean, you've, I know you've been listening to a lot of the shows. You know, that some of those early ROH shows... Oh. You know, had great stuff, but they were also kind of rough in terms of pacing, very rough around the edges. Some of the people that they got um, for the shows were not really up to snuff. How did a 2002 ROH show from top to bottom really play for you at the time? Like, I mean, besides that Boston show, even just some of the shows you saw on DVD. Uh, it was just a matter of, I mean, live experience, it was so, it, I mean, I'd never really been to a lot of independent shows, if hardly any at that point. So, you know, wrestling in such an intimate venue had a certain appeal, even if it was, like you said, rough around the edges. And I think I, you tend to focus more on the good stuff. Like in those first two shows, the Honor Invades Boston and Scramble Madness were really, really good shows. Like not quite top to bottom, but uh, I think, you know, I think looking back, the, the warts are a bit more apparent. You were just kind of, you got caught up like, wow, this is really cool. And, you know, you kind of ignore, you know, some of the matches just weren't good and some of the booking wasn't the best. You just kind of got caught up in it, which is why the show is invaluable to go back and see like, all right, what, what really what really was going down here? And I have one more specific question. How vivid are your memories of Matt Thompson? Oh, man. I just remember him being in that burning hammer. and He was so gangly, like his legs still almost touched the ground. <laughs> I can say, hey, I was there for uh, the Matt Thompson match. You certainly can. I hope you do very frequently. 
it's interesting that you mentioned i mean i think matt had a really good question there but it's interesting because when you when you reminded me there that the first two ring of honor shows in boston were honor invades boston and scramble madness honestly as uneven as ring of honor was in the first year you kind of lucked out in a way because i think those are actually probably two of the better like from top to bottom shows probably in the first year they just happened to be the two massachusetts shows didn't you yeah i don't know sorry go ahead I was going to ask it, uh, uh, Trevor. Didn't you say it was uh, that uh, Honor Invades Boston was the best show of the year? I honestly, I forget my own honors, but it, it was definitely in my top three. It might. It was the only show of the year that I thought had like two really like absolutely great matches back to back like that. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that I love it back to back. Can't even imagine what that. Means. The only thing I love more back to back than two great matches are the back-to-back joining of forces of the place-to-be nation and pro-wrestling-only entities into the place-to-be nation pro-wrestling-only podcast network. They have so many great podcasts in also a very good podcast, which is ours. And um, there's so many ones, good ones. I always try and plug a different one. This time, I'm going to plug John Filipavich's CWF Road Diaries. For people who don't know, CWF Mid-Atlantic has kind of uh, gained a lot of buzz in the last year or two for being a episodic, more old-style, free-on-YouTube, like, weekly indie TV show you can watch. Trevor Lee's the champion there. He's had some great matches there, even ones that, like, you know what's great when Dave Meltzer, Meltzer watches an indie that isn't, like, PWG or an occasional progress. And there was a Trevor Lee match that was so good in CWF Mid-Atlantic this year that Dave even watched it and commented on it. That's pretty big um, praise for uh, Indy. And yeah, it's a podcast. It's short, quick little bursts. He's doing road diaries of people in and around the CWF. Um, Dylan Hales, who hasn't been on the network in a while, makes an appearance in the newest episode. And also, I also am going to just dove that tail that into Matt. Last episode, you called for emails. We actually got emails. Your 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 prayers were answered, and the first one actually is um from John Filipovich, who also I want to point out he also did the Barbed Wire City documentary, which is a very good documentary about ECW. For those who haven't seen it, if you're already thinking, uh. There was the WWE one, and there was, you know, Hardcore, Homecoming, whatever the other one was. And that this one, actually, it, it's worth watching. Even if you've seen those two, it does a good job of doing things that weren't covered in those. I think it might have even been in development before those other documentaries. So, lots of plugs. I am the plug master this week. But I want to point out, we got a few emails this week from people that were bringing up interesting little bits of history I'm, we don't have time to read through them all, but I'll start with John's email. Just a quote from it. He had so many interesting little bits because he was another guy there live at the shows. And he wrote this quote I thought I would bring up. He wrote, that first show did not have 400 people there. And he's talking about Era of Honor Begins. I was there. It was more like 250 people, and it rose steady that first year. But I'd say by 15 people here, 20 to 25 there, show to show. Dave, he's talking about Dave Meltzer, didn't have a network of fans in the Northeast like he likes to imply. Gabe and Rob were telling him this stuff and giving him access, and that comes across in the notes you you read in The Observer. This was ambitious and prominent 
because of who was doing it and their knowledge base slash experience. But we're talking three to four people who would be, quote, in the know on details that Dave prints. And they were Doug, Gabe, Rob, and Doug slash rotating fourth person with knowledge specific to the note that he'd published. So why I bring this up, apart from it being interesting that, you know, I always try and quote the attendance just because I think it's interesting to see track what the quoted attendance was, was we have someone there live saying it wasn't close to what it was announced as. And this is something we've talked about before a little bit, but I guess we should talk about a little sporadically. Um, yeah, like it is really tough doing a ring of honor podcast as the person who does like the bulk of the research. I've said this before, but it is tough finding notes that aren't from Dave. And I know, yes, Dave is heavily influenced. He's relying heavily on, direct sources who are the guys running the company. So you're going to uh, get, you're going to get a very specific view, but at the same time, I still think that view is important to put. Uh, if anyone ever has um, extra background that might fill in the gaps as always through the years at gmail.com, we love when you give us extra information, we use it. And if you don't want to be credited, just let me know. But yeah, that's the first email I just want to point out. I, I, we were well aware. I thought it was really interesting to note that the attendance wasn't quite what they say it is. And I am very well aware that sometimes, you know, we're, we're forced to kind of be reliant on sources that are also reliant on very few sources. And, and as I've said, um, that kind of stays the case for a lot of ROH's history that there's really, you know, not a lot of detailed, backstage or inside info that doesn't come directly from the promoters. And w the second email is uh, Joe Sposto, who has been a very supportive early adopter of the show. You might know him as the former Leonard F. Carson. You might know him from his pro wrestling announcing work as Joe Sposto. You might know him from longboxheroes.com, his site focusing on the world of comic books and such, where he has podcasts there. But he solved, Matt, one of the great ROH mysteries for you and me. Why did Gabe plug Jinx clothing that the Carnage crew always wore so specifically and heavily? And Joe writes very to us. Very controversial. The very controversial Jinx clothing. Joe explains it all, actually, like he's Clarissa or something, because he writes, The playful banter by Gabe about Tony DeVito's weight, I'm sure, comes from a place of love. At the time, they both worked at the Jinx clothing store on South Street in Philly. So there you have it. Gabe was actually working with DeVito at the Jinx clothing store. That's why he was sneaking those plugs in. Man, so if you really wanted the inside info, you could just go to the Jinx clothing store and just ask Gabe... Like, so well, what's, what was the real attendance? <laughs> I think what we've learned from the, the, these emails and talking to Joe here is between Joe Sposto, John Filipovich, and Joe Gagne. Um, if your name starts with a J and you listen to our show, you probably were at the live events mm -hmm. and know way more about Ring of Honor than we do. So any J's that want to come in, you know, you're welcome. J the, just having the name start with J is a seal of approval, apparently. Maybe our next yeah. show will have Violent J, and the show after that we can finally get Jay Briscoe. <laughs> uh, for the record, I mentioned this to uh, Justin Shapiro, and he said he would love to come on and discuss the uh, 2005 show he was at with Matt. He was actually whenever that at, comes up. He probably doesn't even remember, because I remember because he told me. He was at the Round Robin Challenge 2 show that's happening like a couple months after this show that we're doing now. So... 
we, we might force Justin to come on even sooner. Hmm. We'll see. It depends how good Joe's going to be the, uh, the yardstick for all future guests. So oh, no man. pressure. We're, but finally, before we get to the little bit of news we have, I'm going to get to one more email, and that's from Wilson from the ROHworld.com board, which is a great message board if you want to talk about modern ROH or even old ROH, but it's a board dedicated to that stuff. And we were talking about in a recent episode about, I was saying Samoa Joe, you know, said in a shoot interview, he learned the muscle buster from watching an anime, but I kind of doubted that because... I saw Ghost Shadow use it. I saw Jay Briscoe use it in Ring of Honor. And I think there was some other wrestler we saw use it, but I forgot. But Wilson actually does make a convincing case that Joe was not, in fact, an anime liar. Because he writes to us that it was actually a, an anime called Kinniku Man, which from, uh, I think, in the 80s, that was a ro- pro wrestling anime. And that's the invention of the Muscle Buster. So that must have been what Joe was talking about. And I'll quote him here. Because I, re- I asked him like about this, and he replied again. He wrote to me, I really don't recall how J- Jay Briscoe or Ghost Shadow applied the moves, but I know that there were workers that were doing the sit-out slash neck-breaker version of that move before 2002, even as early as the 90s. Kid Cash, Damien666, Mohamed Yone, Daisuke Ikeda. If I had to guess, the first instance of the move in-ring took place in FMW or Mishinoko Pro. So... Um, I apologize to Samoa Joe, another J involved with Ring of Honor, the, the most important J. Um, I am sorry for doubting that you were lo- that you were telling the truth. I am sure you got it from the anime. I'm sorry to slightly imply you might have been a move stealer. Other than, of course, you stole it from Kaneku Man, so how dare you. And finally, we got a little bit of news. Before that happened between the shows, not much, but I'll go to the Observer. Shinjiro Otani and Masala Tanaka returned to the U.S. in mid-April. They worked April 13th for PWF in Polestown, Pennsylvania, defending their tag titles in that promotion against the Hit Squad. There are talks about them working on the Ring of Honor show on April 12th in Philadelphia, but I'm told that's 50-50 right now. So not only did that uh, Tanaka and Otani return to Ring of Honor never happen, and that was something also Gabe would talk about a little bit in Ring of Honor on commentary in 2002, but they, I checked, they never worked this PWF show in Polestown either. And it's interesting because Zero One, after they did that Ring of Honor show, All-Star Extravaganza in 2002, they were really into the idea of coming and doing their own shows in the U.S. In fact, there's a Steve Carino uh, shoot interview recorded in around 2003 where he talks about how Zero One had plant, had intentions, and at that time he was talking like they were going to do it, that they were going to book an entire weekend in Philadelphia where they were going to book like a Friday, I think like a Saturday, Sunday, where they were going to do a convention, then a show on Saturday, then another show on a Sunday, I think. And they were going to tape one for pay-per-view and one for Samurai TV. And it's funny, in the wake of, you know, New Japan expanding into America, Zero One was trying to do this with, a, I think, a much smaller, like, U.S. audience base way back in 2003. But it seems like none of those plans really came to be. Well, I can say uh, Carino did run a series of shows. I think it was early 2004, because it was right before the Feinstein thing fell out. He ran... I think in uh, Philadelphia and also in Fall River, Massachusetts, the show I was at, and I remember he brought in Masato Tanaka, Punk Work Did Homicide. 
so there was something. I can't remember if it was called Wrestle. I can't remember if it was Wrestle One or World One. It was something like that. But they he did end up running some shows down the line, and but that was it as far as uh, Zero One involvement went. Yeah. So that's uh, I just it, it's interesting that you know they were a company that again. I think a lot of companies in Japan they get really excited about the cachet of just saying oh we ran in the U.S. But obviously I think it's it's more doable now than it was back then. But even then they were interested in that. But uh, I just looked it up, and Steve Carino's little promotion was called World One Fighting Arts. World One, all right. Yeah, that that was it. But they were talking about like running like the Zero One branded shows. Like when Steve mm. talks about it, he was saying like they were going to tape their monthly Samurai TV show on one date, and the other date was going to be like one of their I forget if it was Sky Perfect pay per view, but they were like they were going to tape like their regular monthly shows in Philadelphia in some indie building. And, yeah, it just never happened. But one last piece of story, and this is really only very minorly related to ROH, but I feel like so many of the podcasts covering 2002 covered the Philly Indie Wrestling Wars, and this is starting to close a a chapter or a book on that, and I just like the story. So this is our final news bit from The Observer. XPW's three-year exclusive lease on Viking Hall in Philadelphia ended this past week, less than two months into the lease. XPW was paying $8,000 per month for the lease, but with the company's apparent financial problems, which included losing TV in Philadelphia for not paying their TV bills, canceling the last house show, and several wrestlers looking for work elsewhere believing it's going down, they were booted out. Reportedly, they had also violated the lease by holding concerts prior to the last two shows. CCW is moving back from the CCW Arena into the building on uh, March 8th. 3PW is staying at the Electric Factory, which from those who attended the show is a far better location. So, the mighty XPW, it, it flew too close to the sun on wings of wax, much like Icarus. Um, I'm really interested. I don't know the economy of indie shows. I don't know how much, like eight thousand dollars per month to get the rights to the Viking Hall seems steep to me. I don't know if that actually is or not, but it makes me wonder of the. I always am interested in the economy of indie wrestling. And if anyone has any information about that, email us. So, um, you guys have any comments, or should we just go into the show review? Um, I'm good to go. I'm good to go. Okay. I, I find it interesting um, that um, this uh, this next show, Expect the Unexpected, I think it's the longest gap between ROH shows since the uh, Night of Appreciation uh, into uh, Road to the Title because it was wasn't it like it's been like a full month and a half since the anniversary show. Yeah, I think so. And then it's weird because then there's only going to be a gap between this show and the next show because Night of Champions is. One week later, so right, and then and then Epic Encounters just a couple weeks after that. Yeah, so big break, and then all of a sudden, just like a flood of shows. So, and the show we are talking about today, the Joe Gagne attended show is Expect the Unexpected, which took place March fifteenth, two thousand three, in the National Guard Armory in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, the report at the time was that it drew six hundred fans. Joe, do you have any memory? Is that accurate? Did you have a counter? Were you clicking numbers for every fan you saw? And basically, how's the building in the area there? 
it was. Uh, I, I it did, it did seem a big crowd. They talked about it. It looked that way. I was not counting heads. Uh, it was just a national. Um, it was just the national guard hall. N- nothing terribly good or offensive or inoffensive about it. This was the second town they had run in. They had the first two in Wakefield, moved to Cambridge, and this was the second of, I believe, 11 different cities or towns they have run in Massachusetts <laughs> how in the last was, 15 years. How big was the Harvard contingent at the Cambridge show? <laughs> I, I, didn't, I, didn't, uh, I did not see any, um, any Ivy Leaguers, at least uh, from outward appearance. <laughs> Not many ruffled uh, collars and uh, frilly shirts. Mark, no, Zucker- Mark, not, Mark Zuckerberg uh, was not in attendance. No, they did not row there in crew boats to, uh, <laughs> to attend. Oh, the Winklevi were not there. <laughs> the Winklevi, that's how you refer to them in plural. That's how, that's how they say it in the, in, the, uh, in the movie. Oh my god, I forgot. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's hilarious. So, we start backstage with a Christopher Daniels, Xavier, and Allison Danger promo. Xavier talks about all the wrestlers he's defended the title against. Daniels talks about a whole bunch of things, including mentioning that Ring of Honor begged him to cut promos for the one-year anniversary show. He also keeps the embers of the Steve Carino feud warm by briefly talking about that. Uh, the interesting point of this, the, the big plot point they get in this promo, is Daniel talks about how Ring of Honor is forcing him and Xavier to defend the tag team titles today by using their own loophole against them. Because you see, when Christopher Daniels and Donovan Morgan originally won the Ring of Honor tag team titles, they didn't have title belts. They had a trophy. And because the trophy just said the prophecy on it, they use that as an excuse in future matches to use it to defend the belts under Freebird rules, saying, well... Trophy said the prophecy, haha, we can defend with any two members we want. But now Daniels is mad because he doesn't want to defend without Morgan. But Ring of Honor tonight is forcing him to defend with Xavier. Daniels says that doesn't really matter, though, because Xavier is the best replacement he could have ever had. And then finally, we go to Allison Danger's part of the promo, where she threatens to reveal a lot of Steve Carino's secrets, although she calls him Steven. So, ooh, and uh, she says when they were young, her and Steve and, you know, brother and sister, Carino forced her to wrestle with him so he could practice, hit her with chairs, and once broke her leg. And she's saying that, you know, if Carino keeps going after Daniel, she's going to reveal more secrets. Like, are there worse secrets that w- than when I was a kid, you hit me with chairs and broke my leg? I mean, I hope not. Did we... Check off the man on woman violence portion already. <laughs> they referenced it this, yeah. just just in our heads this time. But no, yeah. we will get. Oh, a we'll much- get to that. Don't yeah, worry. There, there are plenty of opportunities <laughs> yeah. tonight. They they really they really went for it on this show. I I also think it's funny. Um, I thought I noted that the ROH tag belts looked very uh, interesting, and actually, it seems like uh, the promoter uh, of the show seemed to agree <laughs> with me uh, based on commentary later in the show. But I guess we'll get to that. And the other thing. That I'll mention is is this does is Donovan Morgan completely done in ROH forever now? No, he comes back I think for one or two more matches. I think he's involved in like the big final like six man losing team must disband. Gotcha, gotcha, okay. But also, he actually also in Boston, right? Yes, that will be the next show, Night of the Grudges. Right. And ironically, he comes back, but Steve Carino isn't involved in that because of Japan and the legal things we talked about last episode, but. Just a regular solid promo to establish like seven things going on. And we finally get to our first match, which is 
Matt Stryker taking on Chad Collier, and Chad Collier wins in 16 minutes, 6 seconds, when he uh, makes Stryker submit to his Texas Cloverleaf. Before I hand it over to, I think Joe will lead off with this one, I'll also note that they, we got our first ever, I think, um, on-screen graphic for the top five rankings. And for the first ever on-screen top five rankings, the number one ranked person is vacant. So I thought that was funny. It says vacant because no one has the number one contenders trophy because they just didn't have a number one contenders trophy match that was like after the one they already had that got the title shot on the same night on the last show. The other people in the top five are Brian Danielson at number two, Steve Carino at three, Loki at four, and CM Punk at five. Um, Joe, what did you think about this kicking off the show? Uh, I was surprised how much the crowd was into this, too. There was, uh, Considering it was just kind of a, a basic straight wrestling match going back and forth, they were surprisingly into it. I don't know if it was just the opening. In fact, it was the opening match. Uh, I, I like this match a lot. I mean, some people, they tried to you know, try to hype it as this kind of this classic match or a match of the year contender. It certainly wasn't that there were some holes in it, uh, you know, you could poke into, but I thought it was, um, an exciting match, especially I, you know, I, I kind of felt bad, like neither striker nor Collier had any kind of real characteristics on commentary other than striker had a unibrow and they pointed <laughs> out Collier has gross ears as, as far as there. So it's just kind of two bland guys wrestling, but I mean, I thought the ending stretch was, uh, was exciting. And, um, I was a bit surprised when Collier won. Cause I just think of striker so much during this period. They, they were, he was a guy they, uh, they went with a lot. So, and, uh, but, um, yeah, I don't know how this, uh, this was a rematch. I don't, I did not watch their prior one. I don't know how it stacked up, but I thought this was a solid opener. Uh, Matt, what did you think? Um, I, uh, I agree with Joe. I, I, I thought that I liked the other one slightly better because um, I think they kind of did a little bit of overkill with the roll-ups near the end here um, in a way they didn't last time. And I, and I still think that Stryker um, needs to work on selling while on offense because he would do a really good job of selling his leg you know, while he was getting it worked over and like when he was starting to try to make comebacks. But then like once he got on offense, he completely would ignore uh, the injury. So it was very inconsistent selling. Um but uh, but I thought it was pretty good. You know, I think they, they, you know, for two guys that aren't given any personalities, the crowd really did like them a lot. And they do a good job with that mat stuff. You know, they, they are pretty pretty good with the, the reversals and stuff. And again, I enjoy it because that's not something you see too much now, pretty much anywhere, um, is, is that kind of, you know, scientific, you know, baby face, uh, basic mat stuff. Um, I, uh, I noted that, Gabe on commentary said they were in Cambridge, Mass, right inside Boston, which mm. um, I don't think <laughs> incorrect. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't. I just, is it like the Vatican? Like I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't think that's how it worked, but um, I don't know. Maybe it is. Uh, but I, uh, but I liked. Um, you know, I also noted that that Gabe said because I always like to note the commentary that ROH is putting together a great pure wrestling division. Yeah, so I was like, oh, nice foreshadowing because I, I mean, they kind of were. This is really the first time they had like this like subset of guys that just did the uh, did the the mat stuff more than anything else. And and I do note that it's there. It, it's becoming a fun little sp- slot on the show. I think it's, you know, there's, you know, it is very, you know, these are two bland guys, but I think they do a really good job considering how much they get the crowd going for this. I think that's a testament to how good they are at it. Um, you know, there's not a lot of intensity, but it's like the perfect opening match and that whole baby face, 
you know, technical opener is pretty classic, um, pretty classic opening match stuff going back, you know, since the beginning of wrestling, I think. So I think it's cool that they do it. Um, I, uh, you know, eventually uh, Collier won with the Cloverleaf, uh, by the way, after working over the leg a lot. But I thought both guys looked pretty good. Um, you know, solid. It was fun. Um, I probably like this match a little less than both you guys. I thought it was perfectly fine. I thought it was average. Like, everything they did, like, technically, execution-wise, they did, they're did. they very proficient at that. I thought it was a little dry and a quite... It was pretty similar to their last match, which I agree with Matt. That match was better. This was similar, I think, right down to the big sequence of roll-ups at the end. And, but the difference was this match got quite a bit more time. I mean, 16 minutes is quite a bit of time. And I felt like until the second half, it really didn't get going. It was just a little too dry for me. Not a bad match. I just kind of middle of the road for me. But I can't argue with what they did because, as you guys mentioned, the crowd absolutely is going nuts for this. Maybe just because it's the first match. But the crowd's like standing and clapping for very basic sequences and like loud, like really into just very basic on-the-mat wrestling. People can talk about um, you know, like Timothy Thatcher's raid and involve and stuff like that. Another grounded wrestler. If he had a crowd like this every night, he would have been the biggest indie star in the world because they would have eaten like if they liked what uh, Collier and Stryker did, they would have eaten up uh, a Timothy Thatcher. And I agree. The talk about the pure wrestling division, I thought was really interesting that he actually used those words when he would literally have the pure wrestling title a year later. And you can tell when you listen to the commentary that Gabe is just on cloud nine. Like he's always had an affinity for these kind of straightforward, maybe a little less colorful, but back to basics, technical wrestlers. And now that he's got a couple of them that aren't named Brian Danielson and Doug Williams, I think you can just see in his head with talking about this pure wrestling division, like the possibilities, like he even starts going through, like, could you imagine quiet storm wrestling these guys? And I'm like, eh, I could. I don't know if I want to imagine it, but, 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 like you can see, you can hear Gabe getting excited, even like rewatching this match, doing the post production commentary that, like, ooh, you like this is a nice that we've got this other element coming into the company with these guys now. There's this is a trend that I'm gonna that I noticed on this show is Gabe being very enthusiastic for things that are maybe a little bit suspect, um, but uh, I'll give specific examples later. Um, yeah, uh, Joe, do you remember whether or not these sh- early shows had pre-show matches that weren't on DVD? Uh, this one did not. I know starting with uh, the next, I can say for a fact, the next Boston area show did have a three-match uh, pre-show. All right, because I, I always have this theory uh, that pre-show matches hurt the heat of the main show. Um, I don't think they warm up the crowd. And I think this show is a good example because the, the crowd was on fire for this match, whereas much less so for some of the bigger name matches later on in the card. And I think it just, a first match, when it's totally, when a crowd is totally fresh and ready for something, it really makes a big difference on how well they react. And, I don't know, if I was a promoter, I don't think I would do a lot of these pre-show matches. Yeah, I thought this was a crowd where, um, I I would describe this as, I thought this was a pretty good crowd, like Joe and his friends did, a, did they, you can be proud of yourself, you did good tonight, boys. I thought this was a very good reacting crowd, but yeah, you, watching this, you can definitely like, 
they almost shoot their wad a little bit, even though I hate that phrase, but like they're very loud here. And then as Matt described, they're not quite as loud for things you would argue might, you would expect maybe to get a bigger reaction later. They're still giving a good reaction, but it's like, they're just really excited to see any wrestling. Mm. And this was the first match that they got presented. Well, I Joe, were you excited for wrestling? I was, I certainly was, (laughs) but, uh, I think there was there may have been a bus from New York because you can hear a "You're Not Striker" chant early on in the match in regards to uh, Matt Striker, the unibrow one, not being Matt Striker, the annoying announcer one, the who, one who the one who was at present ditching his duties as a teacher to uh, yes uh, to wrestle yes <laughs> yes, and I don't think uh, that Matt uh, teacher Matt Striker really made his way up to. Uh, the New England area a lot, except on those uh, Steve Carino World One shows. I can I can say that. So it may have been the, a New York crowd. Maybe they were like, "Yeah, let's show what great wrestling fans we are." I, I don't know, or they just wanted to see some uh, cool mat wrestling. The the only other thing I want to mention is Gabe always like we're two for two. I think where he brings up poor Matt Striker's unibrow. Like you can tell he really just wishes he would shave it. And I would love if this had I know it doesn't, but if this had turned into like the famous baseball players episode of the Simpsons where um, Mr. Burns tells Don Mattingly to shave those side brow uh, side brows over and over again, even though sideburns, not side brows. They call them side brows in Canada. In, in the sovereign country of Cambridge, Massachusetts, within the heart of Boston, <laughs> they call them side brows. Yes. But uh, eventually, Mattingly like just shaves his head because, like in a stripe where the burns would be. I would love if they had just done an angle where slowly each episode, I mean every show, Stryker shaves a little bit more of his unibrow until he has no eyebrows left and gave us still like, shave that unibrow, like just getting angry. Uh, that would have been appealing to an audience of one, but I would have been the one. So I would have liked it too. So <laughs> clearly, this, these shows would have gotten good reviews years later, just based on us enjoying that uh, that dynamic. <laughs> yes, and one last note on Chad Collier. I just checked to see because he wasn't around a lot. He worked a long tour for Michinoku Pro uh, under a mask, uh, using the name of Stealth later in the year. So that's why he's not around. I don't know what that entailed. I couldn't quite find, but I am certainly intrigued. <laughs> It's always weird to think that Chad Collier was in Mishinoka Pro. I, if I had more time, I would check more of that stuff yes, out. Yes, he was stealth and also the Metal Master, meaning... Yeah, uh, Metal Master's the one I remember. Yes, he was not like a, you know, a Black Sabbath fan. He was just had like a knight's mask on, so... <laughs> so, next is another backstage promo where Loki is with the Hit Squad. They do that ECW Ring of Honor type thing where Gabe loves, where they have... The camera's running technically before the promo starts, so it's just casual talk. And Mac asks Key, Monster Mac asks Key about his ankle, and Key says it's fine. And then Mafia is there, and he. This is the start of uh, big things for Mafia because out of nowhere he's acting like a jerk. He's all jealous that Key is Mr. Ring of Honor and a main eventer, and that he and Mac are just two mid cutters. He's being about as aggressive as you can be while still being passive aggressive. Uh, they decide to put things aside so they can cut the promo. Low-key cuts a promo where he says that he's going to beat some respect into Special K. This is something get Gabe. He's obviously trying to keep giving Low-key stuff to do, but as Gabe is wont to do. after Gabe's not a guy that likes to have a core group of main eventers always fighting over the title for a period of years. So what you'll find with Gabe is after a guy gets his world title run, Gabe 
tries to give them stuff to do, but they're out of that scene. So he's kind of entering his retirement phase from the main event scene here where the story is that he told Ring of Honor he wants to beat some respect into Special K. So for the next two shows, he's going to be in the mid-card wrestling Special K members. And the I guess the big twist here is at near the end of Key's promo, Mafia just jumps in and screams at Special K. Key and Mac are perturbed by this. And then the promo ends. Key asks Mac if Creo's rioting friends are going to be here tonight. Mac says they're already here, which sends Key out the door, presumably to investigate or brood. Well, I just assume Key is always brooding, so some kind of combination of brooding and investigating. Yes, and it's funny because the uh, the Monster Mac, or not sorry, the Mafia being all like a dick, never comes up again for the rest of the show. But Loki being upset about Homicide bringing his thugs does come into play uh, again later in the show, uh, a little bit. But it's, it's weird. They, they sort of like, once they actually get to the match, there are no signs of dissension between the Hit Squad and Loki. Yeah. This is, if you didn't see this pro, you'd have no idea that they were starting some kind of dissension angle. Yeah. Also, no, and I, I didn't when I watched the match. <laughs> uh, also, I, uh, I, I would like to make mention, I'm, I have to say it now before we get too far away from the Call Your Match. That I, while we were talking about that match, I looked up Chad Collier on Wikipedia. I don't know why I waited till now. And the first oh, line yes. of his Wikipedia is Chad Collier is an American magician, mentalist, and semi retired professional wrestler. So what? I saw that too today. I'm like, is someone <laughs> playing pranks on Wikipedia here? Well, if he is a magician, then I think that he really uh, missed the boat on getting a WWE push because he could have used that. <laughs> To his to his effect, he could have been the he could have been the real Bray Wyatt. He could do chain wrestling while he's wrapped in chains that he has to unlock <laughs> with a pick that's hidden under his tongue. That's right. I mean, possibilities are really just that, that possibility. Yeah, just, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so next up, we have the Amazing Red taking on and defeating Slim J, who is escorted to the ring with, by hijinks and Slugga. Red beats Slim J by pinfall in 12 minutes, 3 seconds, after he hits what I've seen in some places referred to as the brain damage. Some places have called it the red spike. It's basically like a reverse styles clash where he's falling backwards instead of forwards and the guy's landing on his head. Um, Before I hand this over to Matt, I guess we should give a little bit of a backstory of this, which is... Red is going to be Paul London's part. I mean, not Paul London, but he's going to be Paul London's replacement tonight in the AJ Styles match that we'll be getting to later. Although it's kind of a weird thing because originally the idea was the show was supposed to be AJ Styles and Paul London winning the tag titles. And Dave Meltzer and the Observer even confirmed that, like, even though they changed the people, like that booking, like it was supposed to be Paul London and AJ winning. And Paul Lennon does not make the show. He gets canceled. And I'll go to the reason why is ever since I read this, this has been skeeving me out. Paul London had a sinus infection so bad that it was impeding oxygen to his brain. And he had to get emergency surgery in San Antonio. In fact, Dave Meltzer writes, London underwent emergency nasal surgery a few days earlier in San Antonio. He had a nasal infection so severe it was preventing oxygen from getting to his brain. Quote, which is never good. Thank you, Dave, <laughs> for telling us that oxygen not getting to the brain is never good. But that sounds horrifying. But because of that, 
Red essentially just gets slotted into um, London's place on the card and place in the booking for the tag titles. And I find it interesting that... Um, oh, God, brain fart. Um, because nothing, no, int- nothing about this is interesting, I guess, is what you're trying to say. <laughs> no, the interesting thing to me is, like, it's a, then another chance, I've called it hamburger helping before, where... Um, Gabe is getting both of AJ and Amazing Red to do double duty on the show. Like, he's not changing the booking in that sense. So, Amazing Red still gets to wrestle Slim J here. And before I give it to Matt, the one other thing is, Dave writes in The Observer, they also, they is being Ring of Honor, also have high hopes for Slim J for a ways down the line as one of the next breakout stars. So, Matt, what did you think about Amazing Red and one of the next breakout stars of Ring of Honor, Slim J? Well, the I, the only reason why Slim J being one of the next breakout stars makes sense to me is because I realized during this match I said he was 18 years old. Because if he was like had any level of experience, I would say that he kind of sucks. Um, he Aww. has he has some like cool moves and stuff, um, and I guess that's enough when you're 18, right? Like I, I you know that's fair because and obviously he did get a lot better and he's been considered a pretty good star in the Southern Indies for a long time. But um, but in this match, he just seems like like the worst of the worst in terms of like just just doing spots. Like that's pretty much all he did. Like very early on in the match, Red gives him a super weak clothesline, and he does a 360 bump off of it, um, which I thought was a little bit fishy. And it, but and pretty much the match was just moves. Like it was just some of the moves were cool, and Slim J definitely did some cool stuff. But I thought that the announcers like maybe like overplayed Slim J here, uh, maybe just because they were so excited that he was was able to do what he could do at his age. Um, cool move that, yeah. But he definitely did some cool stuff. Like he did the uh, he did a blockbuster on Red while Red was sitting on the mat, and that got that got um, that got Gabe to go. Oh, I love this kid. Um, <laughs> Uh, he his finisher, I guess, was the electric chair, which seems kind of like a mundane move now. But then I realized in 2003, I don't think I even knew that move existed. Um, I don't think I really like like just like that that type of move. So I guess it was actually pretty cool for the time. Um, Red does an F5 at one point. Uh, uh, Red was supposed to uh, turn a moonsault into a diamond cutter, but they kind of botched that. Uh, Red reverses out of the electric chair, hits two big spin kicks, and then Red started pressing. He got two. And then Slugger trips Red, but Red kicks him, and Red reverses a roll-up into, a, like, a crazy head drop, and I, I guess you called it, like, an inverted styles clash, and he got the pin off of that. Um, so I thought it, it was, you know, like, some of the moves were cool, but there was, like, there was no cohesion to the match at all. I will say the crowd was excited for it, though. Um, you know, they were still pretty up for this whole thing. Um, and, you know, Red uh, and Slim J both, you know, they definitely do good moves, but I don't it was just it was just too disjointed for me. And I... I didn't really like Slim J. Uh, one thing I will say that he did have that was better than Red here, he had pretty good punches. Uh, not, mm. bad, not bad punches for an 18-year-old, but no ability yet, at least, to like string together a match. And Red wasn't, I guess, the guy to help him along it with that. Uh, Joe, from one J to another, what did you think about Slim J and this match? Yeah, 12 minutes was just way too long for these guys. It could have chopped off five minutes, if not more than that. It was just a lot of, you know, the occasional cool cool move. They'd lie on the mat for a few seconds and get up and go right to the next thing. Not a lot of cohesion. It it wasn't boring, but not good by any semblance. And 
early in the match, uh, Red does a dive and takes out hijinks, and Slugger's just standing there. I'm like, your security, like, do something. That's your job. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing, um, first of all, so, so hijinks, the whole thing, hijinks was new, and I guess, like, he was, like, doing drugs while Red do- dove onto him, and... You know, the, some of the, the special K logic, I don't, it doesn't totally make sense to me because Gabe's like, oh, yeah, they just meet people at clubs and then they're part of special K. Oh, but, you know, if these kids get off their drugs, they're so talented. It's like, so they just happen to meet really naturally talented wrestlers at clubs. They don't even know that. And then they join the club, they join the team and they're great wrestlers, but their, their greatness is obscured by the drugs. And it doesn't totally make sense. Like the, the, the backstory of who these people are doesn't completely connect yeah it's a it's a fun gimmick but obviously there's there's not a level of deepness in the crazy like entitled trust fund club kids who do copious amounts of drugs just happen to be like wrestling savants and there's a hundred of them like but i thought as, as a match i actually probably like this a little bit better than both of you guys i thought this was like a little bit above average maybe because i didn't expect it to be a cohesive match i think this match kind of straddled the line where you could tell red saving a little something for later but it also didn't feel like they were holding back that much like i thought in that sense it was a good middle ground for a guy that's gonna have to do double duty um i felt like the there were, this felt like a – Joe said you could cut five or six minutes. I wrote my notes. This felt like a nine- or ten-minute match they added two or three minutes to just of lying around. Maybe that's how they kind of padded things out where there is a lot of like – you expect in a lot of these spot fests to have like a real go, go, go pace to them. And this was a lot of all the big moves, but then – just make sure you lie around for 10 seconds before each move, drag it out a little bit, which, you know, some might argue might be better, but it wasn't like they were doing like great selling or storytelling in that rest between moves. It was just them lying around that moment where, um, um, Slim J does the moonsault off the top and red catches in the diamond cutter led to a really funny piece of commentary because Gabe's doing this thing. He does occasionally where he's, trying to hype how many innovative moves are in the match by he goes when slim jake climbs to the top he goes whatever this move is i'm not gonna know the name of it and then immediately slim jay just does the moonsault into the diamond cutter and gabe's just like diamond cutter and it's like well I, I guess you knew gabe what the move was like the one move gabe knew the name of was the one he's like i'm not whatever this is i'm not even gonna know what it is it's so innovative it's just like moonsault diamond cutter <laughs> and um, but yeah, like I feel like Slim J. I could see the potential in him, and I know people who watch Southern Indies really like him now. And I went back after this match and watched one of those, um, like Future of Honor or whatever they call it matches. And it's funny he's doing that like in the last year at thirty-two, and here he was in Ring of Honor at eighteen. Like he's still fighting to be a Ring of Honor prospect all these years, fourteen years later, and he looked good. Like he, uh. Didn't look bad at all. He's got a little bit more muscle on him now. He doesn't have the full M&M look. I feel like in this match, yeah, you see mostly just the big spots, but he's fairly good at those spots. And I do think he was very generous selling, which is maybe a more charitable way of talking about what Matt said about him, where he's taking flip bumps off clothes, off like amazing red clotheslines. But 
like you could tell he was trying really hard to make every bump and move count just almost like Matt said, almost too theatrical and overselling things, but you could tell he was just trying really hard. And I, I, I could see why ring of honor maybe did see something in him. Um, so if that's all we have to say about that match, then our next segment, scroll down, Trevor, is, oh yeah, after the match, Slugger's angry because Red kicked him in the face near the end of the match. Oh, and by the way, there was way too much interference in this match. Just like, I know that's supposed to draw heel heat, it really didn't, it was just annoying the amount of like grabbing of the leg and stuff like that. Anyway, Slugger's angry. He got kicked in the face. He walks in the ring. He hits Red with this move, the body bag, which was his one big move. But Red's AJ Styles partnered tonight. The deck stack against them. Like, what are they going to do? And end of segment. And then next, we get a in a rare in-ring promo for Ring of Honor. Gary Michael Capetta is in the ring, and he brings out CM Punk. And Matt, you and I have been t- debating on a recent through the years about was all the punk stuff before the Raven feud planned. I would say after watching this, definitely punk's heel turn wasn't planned because this was so abrupt. And we were talking about this on messenger uh, the other day. Like he just comes out here and he's been so like peppy straight ahead, baby face. And this promo, like just on a dime, you can tell it's just them saying shit. Punk needs to be the heel for tonight's match in front of this crowd. They probably haven't gotten the new, you know, home release of the last show yet. Like, what do we do? Well, we sent Punk out to cut out, like, just the most brazen, straightforward heel promo where it's, um, talks about how straight edge means he's better than you. He talks about how the city stinks and like, oh, I thought Philly was a dirty city, but, you know, this is the dirtiest city, um, he talks, he runs down Raven. He gets off a little jab in there where he goes, you know, you're lucky that Raven didn't show up tonight because if he did, he'd stink it up the place worse than Conan did in Philly. So getting a little jab in on Conan there. And Punk, he does this whole thing where he says Raven actually hasn't shown up in the building. After he cuts the promo, he goes to walk back through the curtain, but who's there but Raven? Raven, like, walks him down back into the ring. Raven gets on the mic, he cuts a promo on Punk where he uh, he gets off a Neverland Ranch joke. I couldn't hear half of what this promo was on the home release because the sound system was so bad. Gary Michael Capetta passes the mic back and forth and reacts like, oh shit, when Raven gets off a good line. And the, the end of the promo is basically what we get out of this dueling mic work is that Raven wants the match to be a Raven's rules match, which is just basically anything goes, but punk is hesitant. And then Raven does this gracious thing where he's like, you know what? The first 10 minutes will be straight up wrestling ring of honor style. And then after that, it'll be Raven's rules. So I can do both punk accepts everything. Oh, and the other thing I'll note in this promo is punk says that, uh, Raven's going to end up like Jim Morrison And, well, this doesn't completely defeat Punk's point. I'll note that Raven was, like, a good decade older than Jim Morrison at the time of this match. Like, he had already far exceeded the Jim Morrison death. He did not die at 27. So, um, pretty good promo, but I couldn't hear half of it. And it was very, I found, again, like we said, abrupt. That. I thought Punk was pretty good as the promo. I didn't think Raven was particularly good, and like you said, couldn't really hear it. He kept making a lot of, like you said, Neverland Ranch and Michael Jackson references, and I wasn't really sure what he was talking about. Um, but yeah, the abruptness, yeah, was really freaked me out, because I remembered it so differently. I remembered it as like, you know, Punk kept doing, 
you know, these like, you know, these, you know, babyface promos and these, you know, called the great New York crowd. He sucked up to the Philly crowd. And then I remembered him as like he turned heel in the match with Raven. Like he would just, you know, be dirty and, you know, cheat and kind of like gloat at the end. But no, he just was just suddenly a heel, suddenly shitting on the crowd that he, you know, he was just praising all the crowds just the previous month. Um, and yeah, it's weird. I, uh, I didn't expect, I mean, he was good. But I, I it, you're right. Like the, I think that probably proves that I was wrong the whole time. He probably, they probably just were like, oh, I guess punk, we got to make Punk the heel um, because it's not, it wouldn't work for him as a babyface. Uh, he did cut a good heel promo though, so he was full CM Punk by tonight, and he kind of rose to that occasion, which I guess is good. He seems ten times more comfortable, like as a heel, instant, instantly than he was as a face. Especially a face where he doesn't get to like have the backstory of who he is before he turns face. You know, like he could be a face if he has that institutional like knowledge of the crowd. You know what I mean? But just being generic baby face does not work for him. Mm-hmm. Joe, what did you think? Uh, I liked Punk's uh, Earth Crisis shirt, and uh, also this was like. <laughs> One of the main drawing points for me, because I'd seen a lot of punk in IWA Mid-South in like 2001, so it's kind of this feeling like, holy crap, I got CC and punk. And uh, I believe the crowd chanted homo at punk uh, during one point. Oh, I apologize. Oh, yeah, must have been Must have been the New Yorkers. That it wasn't da- me, I, I swear. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, that damn, that damn 2002, uh, 2003 uh, crowd. Yeah. Would never happen now in Boston, right, Joe? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Just something racist, probably. <laughs> One thing I want to mention, too, is uh, our good pal and the boss man of the podcast network, Chad Campbell, brought this up to us, which I thought was a good point. I forgot about the last show where I was talking about the – we both thought the C.W. Anderson punk match on the last Ring of Honor show wasn't anything special. Uh, Chad reminded us that after listening that CM Punk had wrestled that famous like 93 minute match with Chris Hero the night before that match. And when I'm thinking about this show t- here watching it, I'm thinking how crazy it is that like before, like, I mean, Punk did big things with like the Joe Feud and obviously just a lot of stuff from like 2004 on. But when you think of like pre 2004, I feel like the two big things Punk h- hung his hat on were like the hero feud, but particularly the 93 minute match he worked with him and the Raven feud. And it's crazy that like within one month, both happen. Like, it's just like a huge month for Punk's career. Yeah. The, where, uh, the, 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 the hero match, I guess was like the kind of the end of the main part of that hero feud. Right. Uh, I think so. And then he just walks into yeah. this walks into the Raven feud. So it's a pretty crazy one month period for CM Punk's career. Like this snapshot is actually very important for him. And the next match is a scramble match. The winner gets a tag title shot later in the night. AJ Styles is going at it alone without red. Cause reds hurt from the body bag. He's scored to the ring with Alexis Lurie, and he is able to defeat on his own the Backseat Boys, the Carnage Crew, and the SAT. He wins via pinfall in 12 minutes, 15 seconds after he pins Jose Maximo with a big powerbomb in a cradle. Um, I felt like this match turned out to be more interesting than great. Like, it was, I feel like, a pretty standard scramble match that was fairly fun but it wasn't anything special but i thought it was interesting in that you had aj styles in it and you had the carnage crew in it who you know you don't think of as scramble guys and the backseat boys i think this is their second ever ring of honor match so a lot of new faces i feel like 
everyone pretty much did good except the SAT were just their standard average selves and kind of got outshined in a match which is, you know, in a lot of ways built, almost literally built for them and their friends in the first year. And they're, to me, the least impressive guys in the match. But it's your, it's a standard scramble. There's big spots. There's a dive train. They keep the action going. It's it's fun enough for what it is, in my opinion. The one guy that really impressed me was Loke from the Carnage crew. He takes three big like bumps in this match. He, and he's running really fast. You can tell he's working really hard in a match that's not his element. He's just trying. And I think he succeeds. There's there's a bump where he's just jumping in the air, and he get, takes a big spear from Johnny Cashmere in the midair. He takes a big, like, moonsault slash feet on the ropes neck breaker combo from the SAT, which looks scary. And I'd be scared to take anything with a high degree of difficulty from the SAT. So props to him there. But the bump that I was really impressed with is he takes the backseat boy's backseat boys T gimmick, which is their double team crucifix bomb where they each grab an arm. And I've never seen this move done better. Loke jumps so high and light for this move, and then he rotates and falls basically right on his head and neck. Like, just an ugly... You've never seen this bump taken better. Like, he shouldn't have taken the bump this way, but I feel like Loke really worked hard in this match. Um, Joe, what did you think about the match? Uh, This had one of my favorite Gabe tropes on commentary, where he's adamant when things going to happen, when something else happens, he's completely gobsmacked. Like when there's a big dive train outside, and he's like, oh, is DeVito going to get a table or a chair? And he goes to the top rope and hits a moonsault. And Gabe's like, oh, I can't believe it. And um, yeah, like this wasn't very cohesive. Uh, I mean, it was, it was all action. I, But I think I, I like this better than it would have been had, you know, the SATs or backseat boys been in a straight tag match. And it was certainly, it wasn't boring, I'll say that. And like I, the local bump was uh, extremely memorable. I mean, some good stuff. It uh, it went by quickly enough, and it didn't bother me. AJ won because with scramble rules, people coming in and out, you know, it wasn't out of the realm of possibility he could sneak in, hit a big move, and score the win. Matt, what did you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I one thing I would note, have having watched all the scramble matches so far, is that not having special K in it changed the the dynamic of the match because there was pretty much no like character work to speak of. You know, in a lot of those other scramble matches, you know, you'd have Deranged or Joey Matthews kind of like preening for the crowd and, you know, kind of uh, showing ass, as they say. Um, and this was just straight up like spot, spot, spot. I agree with you that spe- that's SAT, not really surprisingly, are kind of being left in the dust by, uh, by what's going on around them in ROH. They just don't seem that impressive anymore. Um, like, it's not even like it's they're horrible here. It's just they don't. They're not. They're the least interesting team here. Well, that's true, but also, I mean, they they are worse. Like, I mean, I don't. Yeah, think, they were pretty bad here too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think that the Baxi boys are considered like this. These great workers. I, I didn't see a ton of their uh, non ROH stuff, um, but they definitely look better than the SAT here. And they're you know they're working hard. They seem different. They have some cool moves. Um, so I think they'll be a good addition to ROH. Um, and they were over. Um, you know, obviously AJ is just on another plane of existence from all these guys and, you know, he didn't, uh, he didn't hold back. Like everything he does, you know, it really did show everybody else up. He's just, he's just so amazing. Uh, uh, and he still is. So, um, you know, I guess, you know, we maybe, maybe we didn't totally appreciate AJ Styles at the time, 
as much as we should have, as good as uh, as good as everyone thought he was. I don't, uh, you know, looking back, he's like, oh my god, this guy is uh, is completely incredible. Yeah, by you know by two thousand two, really. It, it's like it's crazy when I watch matches like this and realize how long AJ's been wrestling the style he does. No pun intended. Like how crazy it is that he's still in such good like physical shape, at least from watching his matches. I don't know how he feels, but like in this match, there's a moment where he tells the crowd to be quiet and you're like, why is that? And then he dedicates a move he's about to do for Paul London because Paul London was his original partner tonight before the thing that's never good, which is the cutting off of oxygen to your brain sinus infection. And he does uh, Paul London's like big move, which is the shooting star press to the floor. And it's like, AJ has to wrestle later in the night and he's just, he just does stuff like this. You know, he does a frigging shooting star press to the floor. And uh, just thinking like, he's done this for a decade and a half or more yeah, and, and he's other, still this good. The other thing about AJ is I didn't really remember just how important he was to ROH at this time. Like, I, you know, I always thought of him, you know, at this time he was TNA was his main thing and ROH, you know, he would show up for, but really he's probably the number two babyface at this point. In, in ROH, you know, maybe behind London. Um, and obviously, considering London is hurt for a few shows, he might even have more, uh, you know, more time on the shows than London does. And he's, you know, completely, he's a regular, he's in main events. He's actually in main events a lot more than London is. Um, so he was a huge part of ROH in a way that I didn't totally appreciate before doing this look back. Mm-hmm. Me too. I, I agree. The only other thing I want to mention from the match, I think, is um, Trent takes us in a rare, like, bad moment from AJ Styles. He does, like, a powerbomb type move, I think, on Trent Acid. And Trent Acid takes an, a, another scary-looking head bump in this match to the point where if you watch, go back and watch the match, you can see afterwards, like, the refs checking on him. And you can even see Johnny Cashmere on the apron. Like, you can see him mouth the words, like, are you okay? Like... Scary couple. If you're a fan of scary head and neck bumps, there's a couple in this match alone for you to sample. But coming up next, we after the match is the Outcast Killers come out. They get in the ring and they hop on the mic, all aggressive, like talking about the SAT are the team people think of when they think Ring of Honor, and then they jump the SAT. They do like two or three moves and manage to screw up like one of the three moves they get to do. It's like a big boot that the camera angle mostly hides, but Gabe acknowledges on commentary that like, oh, grazing blow. And then the SAT make a quick comeback and hit the Spanish fly. Like this segment just existed so that the SAT could hit the Spanish fly and pop the crowd because... Honestly, again, that's how big that move was, I think, where if you went to a show the SAT were on and they didn't do the Spanish Fly, you probably would have been disappointed. So they made sure you got to see it. At least they still did that well. And next we're going to have to ask well, something. I actually, have a, I actually have a question here. This okay. was a terrible debut for the Outcast Killers, but they, they never really won any matches, so I guess it doesn't matter. And uh, my eternal question remains, were they outcasts who were killers or did they kill outcasts? Was that ever established? <laughs> Uh, watching these the, shows, the they're definitely outcasts. Okay. Well, check to see if there's any fan. Wind call. Yeah. Check check to see if there's any fan fiction online for them. <laughs> it's funny too with the like the politics because whenever they talk about the outcast killers at this point, Gabe always talks about like they're part of the Ring Crew with the Ring Crew Express or you know Dun and Marcos. But it's funny that like Dun and Marcos got the designation of the Ring Crew Express, while the outcast killers got to be their own thing. Like. On the Ring Crew Express, I'm like, hey, how come you don't 
get like branded with the ring crew stuff. You're like, you're there setting up the planks with us. This isn't fair. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to dispute this in the sense that like, if you could be in terms of your wrestling career, on the Outcast Killers or in the Ring Crew Express, you know, looking back in the totality of their careers in ROH, which would you rather be? Oh, Ring Crew Express. Oh yeah, they, they, easily. They had those great shirts, and they were really good. So. I think people have something of a fondness for them. I don't think anyone really remembers the Outcast Killers in any way whatsoever. No. Aww. I mean, that's true, but aw. That was mean. I apologize. <laughs> but actually, we might give you a chance to be a bit more mean because there is a match on the show. You guys were talking about the pre-show earlier. There wasn't a pre-show, but there was a match on the show that never made tape, and that's Alex Arion defeating Hot Stuff Hernandez. And I want to know, I don't know what, I don't know, if Joe, if you remember this match, but it must not have been good because doing my research, I go back and the Ring of Honor website at this time had their Q&A section. And there was something where like after the first Hot Stuff Hernandez thing where they were like, Hot Stuff Hernandez is going to be booked on a lot of Ring of Honor shows coming up or maybe even every show. And then here you get this match and uh, Dave writes, Hot Stuff Hernandez was brought in but got bad reviews. So whatever he did in this match, I think probably hampered the Hot Stuff Hernandez like excitement train Ring of Honor had. Do you remember anything about this, Joe? I, I didn't remember it until you said something. Although I remember seeing Hot Stuff Hernandez during the outbreak later on and wondering, like, well, wh- why the hell is he there? Yeah, me too. I I think something went – I think it was just a bad match. Mm-hmm. Although I'd have to strain my, uh, my memory for this because, like I said, I didn't remember this occurred until you mentioned it. A joke. I mean, come on. It was only 14 years ago. You know? <laughs> no, but yeah, like whatever it was um... – that's the only thing Dave writes about is just that it got he they singled him out in a match with Alex Arion. Not that there's anything <laughs> wrong with Alex Arion, but like, you know, that he got bad reviews. So I think Constant Hernandez does get to wrestle again in Ring of Honor, like not just years later where he does the LAX thing oh, for a show. He's but he's there a bunch of times over the next few months. Yeah. But including I, some noteworthy matches, so stay tuned. But there was a point where I feel like maybe they were higher on him than they ended up would be. But next up we get one of the weirdest matches I think we've seen yet in through the years. And that's the hit squad with low key defeating special K of angel dust deranged and Dixie. And they're scored to the ring by Brian XL hydro and slim J and the hit squad and key went in. I guess if you include the time between the restart that happens in this match, it runs the whole segment runs 18 minutes, 12 seconds. And they went after a triple triple pinfall where low key Gets is pinning one guy after the key crusher. Um, Mafia is pinning one guy after he hits the burning hammer, and I think Mac is pinning someone after he hit a brainbuster. Um, Joe, like, what did you think of this match? We can all just talk about what happened within it, but this was something. Uh, yeah, I wonder who booked this match because I'm guessing Special K didn't request to get the shit beat out of him by these guys. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is the famous Loki does drugs match where. Um, in the middle, I forget. I forget who it was. Was it Dixie? Perhaps Dixie gives Loki a pill, and Loki's like, "Hey, maybe I'll give it a try." And he puts it in his mouth, and then like you know, everyone starts dancing, and Loki puts a, a hat. I've, I forget what they called it. Uh, a kangle. Yeah, something like that. And a he's dancing kangle. around, and then he reveals he didn't swallow the drug. He just had it in his mouth. And I'm no expert on drug paraphernalia. Uh, I think that's a bad idea in general. If even if you have no intention, like don't don't some like like tablets dissolve and whatnot. Yeah, or like uh, tabs of acid and stuff. They're yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's quite what he had. It still seems a poor idea for me for Loki to do this. This allows Gabe to crow that they do sports entertainment better than anyone. <laughs> uh, 
dubious of most dubious statements. Um, I, I, this I don't. I mean, you know, it was sem- semi entertaining to see them beat up Special K. I think Rob Naylor would call it a straight up unprofessional ass kicking, as we'll see from Loki later on. Uh, yeah, this was uh, this was something. Yeah, the thing I'll say about this match is. It's kind of like a tale of two matches where the start of it feels like I I actually had high expectations for this, forgetting how crazy it was because, you know, like the special K are great at taking big bumps and the hit squad and low key are great at delivering ass kicking. So I thought this would be in some ways really interesting to watch. And the first half part of the match, it has a basic start where. Um, Special K do dives, they get a little bit of offense, and then quickly the hit squad and key get control and beat the shit off Special K. And it's like okay, but it's not. The, I think the problem is I've seen, we've seen at this point so many Special K matches and so much, so many like hit squad and key beatdowns that I was just expecting like more, more innovative stuff, more, more like cool beatdown stuff. It's mostly just suplexes. And key beating the ever-loving shit out of Angel Dust. Like, he kicks Angel Dust in the back so many times so hard that it bordered on me feeling like it was abusive. Like, I know the wrestlers probably all agree, and they just know it's part of the thing, and that he's hitting them in safe places, quote-unquote. But in the middle of this match, the camera cuts to, uh, I think, Angel Dust on the outside, and his back is just already getting bruised and marked up. Just key utterly destroyed this guy's back like just so hard so many kicks to it and we get to a point in the match where monster mac for some reason decides he can do a van terminator and (laughs) if you watch this it's it's like the best camera editing and the worst camera editing because it cuts to a shot where you can clearly see everything but it cuts super quick right when it's about to make contact or not make contact and so you actually don't see the botch and everyone reacts like it hit, but the cut is so jarring and abrupt and so different from the way ROH edits that I actually knew something went wrong. So I went back and framed by framed it and he doesn't get close to hitting this man Terminator. So I post this picture online. He calls it a man Terminator it... headbutt, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because near the way, end of the way f- through, you can see on the frame by frame, Mac realizes he's not going to be able to hit and then starts to try and fall forward, like gain any distance he can. <laughs> he still misses. And so I post this online, like a screen grab, and I talk about it a little bit on my Twitter. And David Bixenspan points out that he actually has seen Monster Mac pull off a Van Terminator live. So I was maybe a little hard saying, like, he should never do this, I was thinking. But apparently this is something he can do. I don't know, like, how, how like, um, consistent he is with it. But definitely not this time. I, I will say like, this. If Monster Mac can do a Van Terminator, it definitely makes the move, in general, much less impressive. <laughs> like when anyone I mean, else does it, you know, like I'm just saying when, he's when a really, I, he's a really big, heavy guy. So it means that Rob Van Dam, like you, like, obviously you should be able to do that. Wait, are you telling me Shane McMahon isn't a great athlete? He's, I mean, he out Matt wrestled AJ Styles and we just talked about <laughs> how good he is. So, okay. Okay. Hall of Famer. Then we got to get him in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the match gets all of a sudden the refs, like this is one of the, also one of those weird matches where before I hand it over to Matt, I felt like this was really weird where Gabe does this a lot where 
he's always changing on commentary, like the, moving the goalposts for things like interference, like special case interfering all throughout this. At first, Gabe's like, oh, the ref doesn't see it. Then later when the special K guys go in the ring and start getting beat up, Gabe's like, well, it's not a DQ because the illegal men are only taking offense. They're not giving it. And then finally, when it's just clear they're interfering in front of the ref and the ref doesn't care, that Gabe goes, I'm glad the ref's letting things go. We want to see a winner, you know, shit like that. And then finally, when the ref decides out of nowhere to call for the DQ, he's like, well, the ref had to call it for a DQ. It was getting out of hand. So he just constantly moves the goalposts. Middle of the match, low-key gets on the mic and says, you know, we didn't come here to see a DQ. You know what? How about we make it an impromptu handicap match where all of Special K is legal. And the ref just decides to make it that willy-nilly everyone gets back in the ring we get the segment um joe described where dixie offers loki a pill loki takes it in the weirdest thing you'll ever see acts like he's high then sticks out his tongue reveals he has the pill on his tongue loki doesn't do no drugs and then the weird thing is when he reveals that he's not high he uh, is being held back by Special K, including Dixie with the cane. And so what Key does is he grabs Dixie while he's holding the cane and starts moving Dixie's arm and kicking Dixie's arm while he's holding the cane. And he basically uses Dixie like a puppet to beat up the other members of Special K. So just there's never been another match in the Ring of Honor quite like this. I, would you say that, Matt? Uh, well, there's that one. No, just kidding. Uh, yes, I would agree with you. Um, well, it's funny because when Gabe uh, when when the uh, when they had the DQ finish and Gabe was like, "Oh, what a terrible finish," I was sort of thinking like, I just assumed that was it, and I was like, "Oh, well, I'm okay with it," because <laughs> because <laughs> the match had kind of broken down at that point. Um, also, I feel like nowadays we're much less tolerant as fans of seeing unprofessional beatings of other wrestlers than maybe we were in 2003 hashtag wrestling woke um <laughs> and uh, so it's it's that stuff's a lot more uncomfortable to me now i probably would have thought it was cool at the time i don't know maybe not hope not but i was 19 so i probably would have um but it doesn't seem cool now uh yeah i mean i still find deranged very entertaining uh but I don't know. It's just some of it's weird. When they restarted the match, it was that uh, you know the rule was that all the Special K members were legal, like Hydro and Brian XL and and everybody else. Um, Izzy wasn't there. Was Izzy at the last show? Was Izzy at? I, I don't even remember. He had to have been because like every Special K member ever was in that match. Yeah. Like it was like a hundred to one. You know, crazy handicap. Yeah. Like and um, ten on seven or something. I think you have a good point about the uh, the rules about outside interference. You know, they, the ROH in the first year tried to make the big thing about how, you know, the code of honor and stuff. But really, we've been watching. It's pretty much just the same as every other wrestling promotion, just maybe with more clean finishes. But they have just as, you know, they have interference just like everyone else. They have ref bumps even now, just like everyone else. You know, so the code of honor is kind of bullshit uh, at this point. Um, but that's okay, I guess. It's just when they try to bend over backwards to try to... Uh, to try to make it seem like they're different, it could be kind of annoying. Um, but yeah, uh, I agree with Joe. The uh, the concept that it's um, the concept that that ROH does sports entertainment better than anyone based on this match. This was the same <laughs> month that they had Vince McMahon versus Hulk Hogan, two old men having this like epic showdown. That was good sports entertainment. This uh, this was a reasonably entertaining bit of insanity 
and uh, that's about as good as I can. Uh, that is about, uh, that's about as much good as I can say about it. Um, it. I guess it's good that Loki got to do a match like this once. If you if you um listen to Gabe's commentary, it's funny because you could almost see him try and sell this match on the fly because at first he almost sounds like half embarrassed for a couple sentences where he says something like, uh, you'll probably never see a match like this in Ring of Honor again. And then all of a sudden he's like, you know, well, Ring of Honor doesn't usually do sports entertainment, but, you know, when they do, like, just shows Ring of Honor can do anything, you know, and do better than WWE. And it's just like, this is the same guy that had the hit squad talking over and over again on the first shows about kiss sports entertainment's ass goodbye. And the announcer so often would be like, this isn't sports entertainment. You know, this isn't like up North and WWE and all this stuff. And it's just, you know, with all this stuff, like all the rule breaking and the sports entertainment and the crazy gimmicks, it's like, Gabe wants it both ways, where sometimes he'll sell it really hard, like this is where rules matter, and this is where interference doesn't happen, and this is where we respect women, and this is where we don't have crazy, goofy sports entertainment. But then when he does does happen, he's just like, well, we do it good, so who gives a shit? You know? Or, oh, you know, who cares if there's interference because fans want to see outcomes? It's like, pick a side and stick to it. Don't When you try and have it both ways, like I'm good with either side, either make it crazy and don't really stress the rules or be this really straight laced thing. That's trying to reap, reap the benefits of that. But he, he always in these matches is trying to have it both ways. But next, unless there's anything else to say about that, we have, I just want to make a, a note that I've seen the Hit Squad uh, wrestle twice this year. So AJ's not the only one with amazing longevity because they look pretty much exactly the same as they do right here 15 years later. I saw him work a CW, C, uh, the Hit Squad work a CZW show on, I watched like a year ago. And I felt a little bad that like Mafia's gained back the weight. <laughs> like mm. I felt like, oh man, there's no hope for any of us then. But. Next up is a, this was, I think, during intermission, Gary Michael Capetta is backstage with the Carnage crew. The Carnage crew cut their usual promo about how they don't care about winning or losing. They just want to hurt people to escape from their miserable lives. They complain this time about taxes and gas prices. $1.75 per gallon. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) And this does have the one very important piece of character development where we learn that Loke has the fat wife and DeVito has the skinny crackhead wife. So there's lots of good character development here. Um, Cut to Gary Michael Capetta again backstage with Raven. And before he can even start to talk to Raven, Trinity walks by and Raven stops her, kind of flirts with her, asks if she can escort him to the ring and then, quote, work out something later, unquote, with him. And she says yes. Like, it's just that simple when you're Raven, folks. You can just walk off to someone and be like, hey, baby, want to escort me to the ring? Raven's a gorgeous, <laughs> gorgeous man. Got a gorgeous, giant sheet covering his gig scar on his forehead gorgeous so yeah that just two little backstage segments and then we go to ghost shadow and quiet storm taking on and defeating the ring crew express of dun and marcos in three minutes 15 seconds when storm makes marcos submit to uh what would you even call this like i just uh, i guess a modified indian deathlock or something like that I don't even know what you would uh, call this, but yeah, I um, I don't either. Um, it was a move. Ma- it was a leg move. Uh, 
Matt, you talk about this match that featured this leg move. I'm putting this match on you. Oh, there's great. a lot to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's a big Dunn and Marcos fan in the crowd, uh, and they start the segment by focusing on him. And I guess that's pretty cool. Uh, Joe, was that you? Oh, no, that was not me. I don't blame you for asking, though. You weren't the big giant guy with long blonde hair and a denim vest and a bandana, sunglasses, that was, like, partying really hard with the Special K guys. I mean, the Ring Crew Express to the point where, like, during their pre-match little promo, they were like, we're going to rock for that guy, and they point to him. No, I had my denim vest and bandana, but I have uh, brown hair. So Okay. I'm or I did once upon a time. Yeah. I'm, complete, <laughs> I'm completely misremembering the way you looked the times that we hung out. Um... But because uh, I thought that was you. Um, but yeah, I mean, so that was fun. Uh, Dunn and Marcos like are starting to get offense. It's only like the second match where they actually get offense in. So this is actually a competitive squash, I guess. It's not even a squash. It's just a short match. Um, you know, Dunn and Marcos get a decent amount in. I guess is Chris Divine gone? Like he's another another one where I'm just like, what's what's going on here? Well, okay, here's the thing. I don't know how much we should really get into this for legal reasons, but um, okay, well, is he Chris, gone? How, we can we can say yes, that at least. Y- y- yes, but I, I can say a little bit first on commentary. I think if you remember, uh, Gabe says Chris Divine had got booked in IWA Puerto Rico, but when I looked up what happened to Chris Divine, because he is gone from Ring of Honor after this. Um, he basically left wrestling due to allegations of domestic abuse against Trinity. Oh, okay. So that's why they immediately put Trinity in with uh, with someone else. I'm going to assume, yes. But, uh, I mean, after he does a little bit more work with some other promotions, like, Chris Devine doesn't just drop away from Ring of Honor. He basically drops out of wrestling for a period of years. Huh, interesting. Um, well, I hope the allegations aren't true, I guess. <laughs> Mm, glad wrestling has cleaned up this problem. Yeah. Uh, Guys, men don't do anything bad to women. I don't know if you've been not reading the news like I have. I know it just doesn't happen. It's all good. Yeah, I don't. I re, I not read the news every day, so I, I, I have I've never heard of any of this happening. Yes. Um, but anyway, um, this is the, this is a surprising match to get into these topics on. Um, <laughs> I suppose so. Uh, I just want to add that uh, I was a big fan of Ghost Shadow. He had a fun series in Jersey All Pro with um, uh, Deranged, and did uh, he did a lot of like uh, you know cool mat work, interesting moves and whatnot. None of which he could really display in this uh, this quick quick match. And this is actually it for him in Ring of Honor. He was actually out of the business in a few years. I don't know quite what happened, but it was uh, a little disappointing from that standpoint. He's on an island somewhere with Matt Thompson. Well, like we they're, all they're, they're living the good life out there, um, <laughs> but um, but yeah. So uh, you know, yeah, like Storm does the leg submission. There's really not a lot to the match. The only thing that I notice is to what I was saying before. At the end, after like this three minute match, Gabe is like, "What a great match!" And I was like, <laughs> "Like really? Like there, there were? I just I, like the, I I don't know what Gabe was doing this on on the commentary on this show, but he was really amped for a lot of this stuff more so than I would expect." <laughs> There is the the thing I went I laughed at was um, they do a promo at the start Ring Crew Express do where they do their usual we are Dun and Marcos the top tag team and Ring of Honor catchphrase and then when the match starts Gabe like references that they said that he's like we'll find out in this match if that's true and I'm like really we're gonna find <laughs> out if they're the best tag team in Ring of Honor if they can beat Ghost Shadow and Quiet Storm like I I don't know but. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, I thought, you know, there's not much to say about a three-minute match, but this was the most offense the Ring Crew Express probably have had up to this point that we've seen. Um, Dunn does that fall-away, like, gory bomb that 
slam that's really cool. And I did think, I thought Gosha looked really bad in his other Ring of Honor match. I thought he looked much, like for the little you can see in a three-minute match, he did look much improved. And I'm glad that Joe mentioned enjoying Gosha because, yeah, he's a guy I heard some okay things about. And if you just watch Ring of Honor, you really don't have enough to judge him on. No. So to, to hear that he was better than this. Uh, Joe, I don't know if you have anything to say about this three-minute match. No, I, I think we've we spent more than three and a half minutes yeah. on it, so we can... Okay, okay. Um, next we get to the Ravens Rules match, which is CM Punk taking on and defeating Raven, scored to the ring by Trinity, via submission in 18 minutes, 50 seconds, with something he calls the Devil Lock, kind of like a Tequila Sunrise, I guess you would say. So I did a lot of research on this match. I went and listened to way more and watched way more Raven shoot interviews than I wanted. I found an old CM Punk shoot interview. There's a lot that I can say about what they've said about this feud and this match. But first, I think we should just give our thoughts. So what I'll say is I thought this was good. Like, not great, but good. This was... I think a Raven bells and which not wish halls, but whistles ECW match. There's a, you know, there, there's the plunder, there's manager getting involved. There's a ref bump. There's, you know, Raven DDTs the ref after the match to get his heat back. I, there's, it's the kind of thing where you can like practically when you watch this match, you can practically um, imagine like, Raven plotting this out in the back. Like, we'll do this, and somewhere along the line, this can happen, and then we can do this, and we'll do this because it leads to this. And you can tell Raven works at a different pace than everybody else. He lays around the mat a lot more. Um, But the match is always doing something. Punk puts... We get our 15 for 15 man-on-woman violence because at one point in this match... Um, Trinity's committing the egregious sin of checking on Raven when he's her on the outside. And because of that, like punk lifts her up and hits her. She gets her revenge by doing a moonsault off the top of the floor. And then punk gets his revenge on that revenge by putting her through a table. So we get our pretty in your face, man on woman violence. And also I'm just surprised, but we can get into it in a second. Like Raven really puts punk over hard here. Like in the first match, just, submits to there's you know there is one point where raven maybe could have gotten something but the ref's been bumped but it was just off of a a drop told into a chair so it's not like he hit like the ddt and you know didn't got screwed out of it so really he loses to punk almost clean here um joe what did you think about this match like you said it, it was it was good for you know this stage cm punk and this stage raven for a fairly lengthy match, it uh, it held up pretty well. I was, you know, it was certainly not a boring. Uh, I'll say that it was the ECW style brawl, and that one of the strengths of the show is that it did have a wide variety of styles, going from the opener, you know, to this, to the the scramble match, the the sports entertainment of the uh, the uh, low key hit squad special K match. I thought uh, I was just kind of surprised, like. I didn't quite remember them going to the plunder this soon, given how many st- uh, stipulations there were in this feud. But I think it, I think it's uh, it's held up well. I think uh, Punk looked good. I think Raven, you know, I can't remember the last time he looked uh, this good. And this was a solid, good match to start the feud. Uh, Matt, what did you think? Yeah, I 
I liked it a lot more than I expected. I, you know, I thought early on they were like overselling how much better Raven looked. He was like, oh, he's out of that shithole up north, and now we can do real stuff. <laughs> and I was like, all right, he's not that good. But as the match <laughs> as the match went on, I really, I really was enjoying it. I, I liked the, the twists and turns. Obviously, the stuff with Trinity was totally unnecessary. Um, like is like it always is, um, and and the way Gabe is kind of like on commentary. Well, he's got to take her out because it's no DQ, so he's well within his rights. And it's like, ugh. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you know, it's hard to get into the headspace. I that I get, I guess that was how wrestling was back then. Uh, it's kind of sick that I didn't, you know, get as bothered by it at the time. Um, that, I, but, um, but yeah, like I, I I thought the twists and turns were good. I you know Raven did a pretty good blade job. Um, and uh, you know his his comebacks were good. All, every you know there were at no point did Raven really look lethargic. I don't think you know obviously like you said he was different from the other guys in ROH, but he he stayed on his toes. Punk was able to show his personality in the match. I did think that the match had a little bit less heat than I would have expected, um, but you know I guess the crowd was just getting tired. It was the second half of the show, but it was good. I, I you know I thought the pacing was good. I liked the finish. I. Um, you know, I I uh, I like the big spots. Um, you know, even the ref bump. I thought, you know, because always doesn't do it that often. I thought it worked. And, you know, and I always hated ref bumps because you know WWE would go to it so often back at this time. But for ROH, when they rarely do it, I thought it worked actually pretty well here. Um, I I I do think it's uh, interesting. They they mentioned that Raven was busted open from an NWA TNA match from earlier in the week, and it is always very weird to hear anybody say NWA TNA, <laughs> but Gabe says it a lot because that's what it was called back then. Um, it do- now, there's one spot that I thought Raven maybe actually messed something up. He did a sharpshooter, and then it was like he was facing front and down, and I couldn't tell if that was what the move was supposed to be or if he just kind of messed up the sharpshooter and went with it. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, it looked like he just kind of messed it up and then just kind of went along with it as best he could, but nothing really overly noticeable or anything that really detracted from the match. Yeah, I agree. I like this one spot um, where Raven tried to bring a table into the ring and Punk immediately baseball slides it into him. That was right before the Trinity stuff. And I thought that was pretty cool because I didn't see that coming and I thought the timing was really good. So they did definitely did some good stuff in this match. I think this was a solidly good to very good match. Yeah, I thought this was a good match. I, I, I even especially liked um, the opening, I thought, was just, again, like a smart layout where, you know, the whole idea of this match was Ravens being gracious and saying, you know what, I'll wrestle you straight Ring of Honor first, and then so- at some time later, like 10 minutes in, we'll have Ravens rolls. And so at the start of the match, like, Punk is out wrestling Raven and being all cocky, and again, Punk is so much more in his element as a heel. He's, like, doing the Raven pose after a sequence where he out-wrestles Raven. But then Raven starts out-wrestling Punk straight up. And then what does Punk do? He, like, takes a powder to the outside. And he's the one who starts, like, bringing in the Raven's rules type, like, plunder and stuff. So it's just classic, simple booking of, you know, the the face actually beats the heel out of his own game. And so the heel resorts to the thing that he actually was hesitant to resort to because he's an asshole and, like not living true to his word. One other thing I'll mention is if we always talk about the bits of commentary, we like, I loved this part where 
I agree with Matt where Gabe was just overselling, like laying it on so thick about how good Raven looked and how he's in the best shape of his life and stuff. And like physically, he did look like in good shape. I don't think he wrestled that much different than Raven normally would, but he was only 38. And Gabe's acting like he's 68. (laughs) And I I, I like this part where Gabe on commentary, he's, he's laying it on so thick and talking about Raven's amazing second act of his career and his commitment to wrestling and fitness. But then when it gets to like him being clean, even Gabe is honest enough where the most he can say about Raven cleaning up his act is quote, he kind of cleaned up his act a little bit. Like I like that. He's like, you know, Oh, he's looking so good. He's so healthy, but like he, he can't like even Gabe can't be like, well, you know, he's living clean now. Like, no, maybe he does a little bit less. Also, maybe it's just, Oh, so go on. Matt. The commentary, I think, kind of romanticized Raven's drug use a lot, especially at the beginning. You know, Doug, especially, you know, it's like, oh, you go hear these shoot interviews, all these crazy drug stories, and with the dealer, and you know, he was, and it's just like, all right, are we, uh, are we pro drugs or anti drugs? Because I can't <laughs> tell. <laughs> and I also want to bring up about the women stuff. Like, it's bad. I, I don't like wo- the woman on the man on woman violence stuff. But I will say, I almost got less offended by this match just because it felt like such a a ECW throwback. That I'm just like, well, that's less Ring of Honor being weird and them paying tribute to ECW, which was weird. <laughs> like, um, but I think a lot it, of the all of it is Gabe still being in that ECW mindset. So a lot of it is just like, oh, well, ECW fans loved you know when um, Beulah got pile drove, so we got to do that on every single show. Well, it's one of those things where Gabe, like, and I love this about Gabe, especially from this era, where I think Joe mentioned this about the variety of the show, and Gabe mentions that on commentary, like, oh, we got so many different kinds of matches, and I loved that Gabe at this time, that was his vision, is to try, I love wrestling shows that have lots of variety, but it's like Gabe almost had the man-on-woman violence as part of the variety, like, you gotta have a technical match every show, you gotta have a scramble every show, you gotta have, like, a hardcore element to most shows, and you've definitely gotta have, like, it's just penciled in, you gotta have a man bumping a woman somewhere on the show like for him that was part of the variety like mandated it seemed like every show we should start a pool because i don't remember of when the what the first show will be where there is no man on woman violence Uh, i can say checking my show notes i think the next two shows i attend are uh already disqualified (laughs) (laughs) i'm going to uh, Oh, I just oh, want to say, I want to make a note about the uh, Gabe's line about the styles. That At first it bothered me because it made everything seem kind of fake. But I guess that's something you could tout on an MMA show if you have two submission specialists going at it against two heavyweight you know, strikers. So maybe it's not that, uh, not that bad. If you were going back to like old school, early UFC, where it was literally like we put a karate guy against a sumo guy and we want to see what happens. Like, yeah, I guess you could argue if wrestling is a bit more like that. Like, oh, we put Amazing Red against Low Key and look at this and all this stuff. But uh, another thing I agree with on Matt is I think this match works because we don't see it in Ring of Honor a lot. I think these kinds of matches get old real quick, but because watching just Ring of Honor going through these shows, like it's a novelty if you've been watching Ring of Honor show by show. Like you don't see this hardly at all, this kind of match. And in that case, you know, it reminds you that these matches work when they're not done often. And I thought it was, you know, nothing amazing, but uh, I agree it was a good match. And actually now I just want to go into a bit of backstory because I feel like this is a good point in our 
series to go into some of the thoughts Punk and Raven had about this feud. There'll be some we'll say for later shows, but first I want to point out something I learned from researching this is this was actually the second match Raven and CM Punk ever had. The first was the night before for IWC, Norm Connors promotion. And Punk tells this whole story about um, working it with Raven, where he says it's the first time he ever worked Raven. And they're backstage, and Raven's like, yeah, what, uh, you know, what do you like to do, kid? And then all of a sudden, Raven, who I was busted open from that... Um, that NWA TNA show, he, he is cut, just starts bleeding spontaneously on its own. And so while he's talking to punk backstage at IWC and so punk says, Raven just asked somebody like, is there anyone wrestling right now? And they're like, well, someone else's entrance music is playing. And Raven just grabs punk, goes to the curtain and they start brawling and do the match right then because Raven doesn't want to waste the blood. He doesn't want to have to cut himself open again later. So they do this brawl. And Punk says he chops Raven hard. And after a few chops, Raven starts blocking the chops. So Punk, like, chops him harder. And then they said after the match, Raven's like, eh, good match, but, like, no more chops. You know, if you were Chris Benoit, maybe I'd say you do chops. But you know what? You're going to chop me, you slap to your leg. And Punk says, I never chopped Raven again after that. And he says, matches went a lot smoother, he said. So I thought that was a little funny anecdote. And I got a few notes from... um, this is from a Punk shoot interview from, I think, like late 2003, early 2004. And he says, the Punk-Raven match was supposed to be just a one-shot deal, like which maybe explains why Raven put him over so hard, not just to set up a possible future feud, but like if I'm just coming in and doing one match, yeah, why wouldn't I put this guy over, I guess, just in case. And he says, it turned out so good, though, that... Um, it got Raven extra bookings and he does this whole thing where he, he coughs he goes, you're welcome, Scotty. <laughs> and typical Punk. And he says, Punk, the feud with Raven brought a new element of his character. But he said, while some are saying it's feud of the year, he's not all that proud of a lot of the matches. He says Raven works a slower, more deliberate pace than he's used to. And he says no to a lot of Punk's ideas. He says um, Raven refuses to take a lot of the moves Punk wants to do to him, but he refers to Raven as the boss. Then later on, he goes on. He says he thought the Boston match we just talked about was good and that he notes that Raven put him over without any complaints. Punk says Raven knew he needed to chase Punk to make the feud work. Punk gets asked if uh, working with Raven was a learning experience. And Punk says yes and says he loves working with Raven. As much as he complains, that's just him ribbing Raven. Says Raven has helped a lot. But he also wants to point out that he's helped Raven a lot too and hasn't got a thank you. And at this point, he tells a story where he says... Raven at one point phoned Punk and said, you know, I'm coming to Chicago for Comic-Con. Like, could you get me some work? And Punk says, you know, I made calls. I got him two bookings in Chicago that weekend. He probably made thousands of dollars, and he never thanked me once. Like, he doesn't sound angry, but there's definitely when you watch the Punk interviews on Raven and the Raven interviews on Punk, like, neither hates each other, but you can tell there's definitely this feeling of the other guy doesn't appreciate what I did for him enough, like, on both ends. So we'll go to um, Raven does Secret of the Ring Volume 5. He did five Secret <laughs> of the Ring shoot interviews. Um, probably did 100 shoot interviews in general, but Raven really puts Punk over a talent, especially his character. But he also decries Punk and other guys who are more focused on doing a million moves and having five-star matches than drawing money. This is at a time he did this interview when Punk was in OVW, and Raven says that Punk will be stuck in OVW forever because WWE will never let him up to prove a point about the Indies. They want to prove a point about the Indies. They'll never let him out of it. 
he uh, he says you get elevated by beating names. And Raven claims he went and told Gabe that like when I come to Ring of Honor, I want to make somebody on the roster, someone that isn't already like big on your roster. Punk was the name that Gabe gave him apparently. Raven points out something like he says like I won what like one of the eight matches in the feud, but he says if I was a heel, heel it would have been different. But for the purposes of this, it was right for me to lose all these matches. There's a funny moment in this interview where after he pontificates so much about the feud, Raven then has to double check with Gabe, who's doing the interview, if he was a face or a heel in the feud, like he can't even remember. It's like, was I a heel in that feud? And Gabe's like, oh, you were the face. And um, Raven just stresses in a lot of these interviews that you need to sell and stay down the mat more. He says he claims that Punk got that more as the feud went on. But going back to the Punk shoot interviews, he's like, yeah, um, Raven made me do that stuff, like said no to way too much of my stuff, and it's way too slow for me. And in fact, there's one interview I think where Punk is like, after the Raven feud, he wrestles AJ Styles, and apparently, like, Punk says, I told AJ before the match, like, I really need this. I've been wrestling Raven for so long, like, I need to be able to work, like, this kind of match again. So, again, Punk didn't hate working with Raven, but he definitely seems like. They had different ideas of what they wanted to do about pacing and yeah, that like kind he, of stuff. He made some compromises in having to work with Raven, I think, is what the theme seems to be. Yeah. Um, Raven uses this also as a feud that he says, like, he worked really hard. He says that he had, he admits he had gotten lazy at this point in his wrestling career. And he says this feud was him trying to prove that he could still go. Um He's a little perturbed that Punk doesn't think the feud did anything for his career, which must have been comments Punk made later, because, again, in the 2003 shoot I found, Punk does kind of give some credit to Raven. But, again, Raven doesn't sound pissed off. He just is like, whatever. He doesn't really want to give me credit. Um, Raven has uh, one more little comment. He says the match against... Punk in Boston was good match, but not his best match. He says Punk's really good, but he's not as top of his game yet. And... He says he feels the match would have been better if he had been heel and not Punk because the heel controls the tempo of the match, and he thinks that Punk was nervous about setting the tempo because of his respect for Raven, as well as his inexperience. And, yeah, there's not much more about that other than he just, um, he also wanted to give Punk the rub because he thought that everyone would expect Raven to win coming in. So he feels like if I beat Punk, it does nothing because people expect it. If I lose to Punk you know, it means something because it's a surprise. And I was surprised again about how much Raven puts over punk, like pretty clean, the relative thing. He loses at a Raven's rules match. You know, he gets beaten up badly. The only saving grace is that at the end of the match, he still hasn't been able to hit his DDT on punk yet. So they're saving that, but he gets to DT DDT the referee. So that's the one then that gives Raven a little sign to go out on. But yeah, Raven was very generous, I think, in this match. Yeah, a couple things based on uh, about what you said. First of all, so if they decided later on to book Raven again, I mean, he was back in ROH a week later. So yeah. That's, that seems – and also there was a promo on the show where Punk talked about the next week's match. So unless that promo was shot at a different event, that timeline doesn't make any sense, um, which I guess is possible. Maybe they cut the promo after the match or at the following week's show always possible. The other thing is I kind of agree with Raven that in the sense of like I think that if Paul Heyman had not been brought in to book the new ECW I think that it's possible that they wouldn't have brought Punk up because they still had that mentality about the indies and it was you know as Punk said in the famous promo he's a Paul Heyman guy and Paul Heyman kind of got him in. So I think there is a possibility of that being true and the last thing I will uh, 
I will say is um, actually I forgot what I was going to say there. So uh, <laughs> those are the two things that I will say. I will just have one note of um, how much I enjoyed Punk's glee when he ran over the ref, uh, the ref bump, and it was odd because they said this was like the ref's first assignment, which is odd for such a, a big match in company history. You would just throw a guy out there for the first time. Yeah, I wonder if that's because they knew Raven was going to DDT him and they wanted someone special to take that bump or take the, like, um, I, I, I don't, I can't see that being the case, but I'm just trying to think of a reason why, again, like, I noticed that too. Why would you give a brand new ref, like, a pretty big match for his first match and nothing else on the undercard to this point? Mm. Like, it, it was weird. I remember, but, uh, I remember what I was going to say. Um, oh, good. So Raven was talking about, like, you know, they'd rather do moves and draw money. And, you know, I think Raven in some ways doesn't get it in the sense of, like, for ROH, the the quality of the matches is, what's drew, is what drew the money. Because, you know, they were trying to sell tapes. And people buy, bought the tapes. Gabe is right about this. People bought the tapes for the great matches. So I, I think that his, um, his idea of, like, what a wrestler needed to do was kind of behind the times or at least not calibrated to the promotion that he was in. Yeah, like, when you listen to these interviews back-to-back, sometimes when you listen to or watch shoot interviews, I prefer listening because just seeing some guy sit in a dingy couch in front of a (laughs) thing isn't always my favorite thing. But um, when you listen to a lot of times people, two different wrestlers talking about an event that happened to both of them, you get, like, this almost Rashomon-type thing where they're telling vastly different sides of the the same event. But this is something like, like... I can t- as someone who's listened to a bunch of this in the last week, like Punk and Raven both seem to agree on most things about this. Like they both say, like Punk wanted to do a faster matches, and I told him no, and you know all this stuff. And they both have a respect, but at the same time, feeling like they weren't given enough respect. Like I mentioned, like nothing these two guys do really contradicts each other when when they're talking about this feud. And I will know in a bit of a happy ending, even though you know Raven complains a bit about how Punk works. He talks about how he's – I think he, it was an interview where he was paid to um, – like he said, I don't watch wrestling anymore, but I was paid to host a pay-per-view party or something. And he was like, I saw – I had to watch a couple of WWE pay-per-views, and I saw Punk. And he was like, Punk – I was like, wow, Punk's gotten really great. Like he was the best part of both those pay-per-views. So like Raven thought that Punk had come a long way from even when he was feuding with him that like, wow, actually this guy is really good like everyone's been saying. So the respect does come eventually. And next we have the number one contenders trophy four-way match. One fall to a finish. BJ Whitmer versus Easy Money versus Homicide versus Samoa Joe. Samoa Joe wins in 16 minutes, 35 seconds after he makes Easy Money submit to the Coquina Clutch, the rear naked choke. Uh, Joe, this was like the second biggest, I mean, the semi-main event. What did you think about the match? Uh, There were points where... Joe and Homicide were in and facing off, and you could tell there was like a real spark there. And then there were the times Easy Money and BJ Whitmer were in, and it was just not nearly as exciting. And this was, I mean, these four-way matches, like guys would just tag each other in, like like they're tagging a partner when you know it's not elimination style. If you're not in the if you're not in the match, you can't win. And guys would just tag out, and then I remember someone went for a pin right after he ta- like. He got the tag, and the guy who tagged out didn't even bother to look back and be like, oh, I hope he doesn't score the pin there. So I don't know if this was a a regular thing of these, because 
these four-way matches were a staple of Ring of Honor for quite a while. If this is something I'm just forgetting, or I had forgotten, or I'm, I'm nitpicking on, I don't know, but it, it really stuck out to me in this match. And like I said, it was, uh, you know, I remember there was a strike exchange with Joe and Homicide. It's like, whoa, like, you know, this is something I want to see more of, and less of Easy Money, who I think was back for like one more match after this. And, uh, uh, teaming with uh, Sterling James Keenan, if memory serves, at the uh, Round Robin 2. Mm. Um, Matt, what did you think about the four-way? Um, I definitely agree with Joe that the, the the Joe homicide stuff really pretends well for their feud that's going to happen. Like it's, it's clearly like they're on a different level and they have great chemistry. But I probably liked the match overall more than Joe did. Um, I thought, you know, if I, you know, I mentioned this a couple shows ago when about these four ways. You just have to accept that this is what they are. You know, like they're they're really they exist to have, you know, the big spots at the end where they all run in and do their big moves and break it up and all that stuff. And you know, if you can accept that that's just what they are, they can be pretty fun. Um, and I thought it did get pretty fun at the end. You know, I liked that the through storyline was that Joe and Homicide were really, you know, starting to heat up this rivalry, and these other guys were sort of just kind of along for the ride. But as far as just the actual moves and stuff, I was actually surprised by how much Easy Money looked like he belonged, because you know obviously he's not in ROH very much longer, and he uh, he really kind of he you know he fit in. He did some cool moves, and I think in this in these kinds of matches, if you could do the cool moves, you pretty much got it made as far as as far as that stuff goes. I thought it was kind of funny because. You know, Whitmer and Easy Money started it off, and they both have the same haircut, and they're both wearing very similar colors. Really, just Money is just bigger, but they they really do have very similar appearances. Um, and I, you know, Money was the probably you know the worst guy in the match, but he got to do a lot more stuff than Whitmer did, so I think that he stood out better. And I think one of the things that they, the announcers mentioned was that Easy Money kind of avoided a lot of the. Uh, the punishment in the match. So that gave him kind of a role that he would come in and he would just be fresh and, you know, hit some of his big moves, his money clip and, and, you know, which I think looks pretty good when he does it um, and all that stuff. But definitely the highlights were when Joe and Homicide were smacking each other and chopping each other and kicking each other. And, you know, they're both stars on another level of these two. Um, You know, when the match started, I was like, one of these things is not like the other because, the, the, you know, Joe, Homicide, and Whitmer are all, you know, long-time ROH staples. And Easy Money, you know, was there for, you know, at co- a cup of coffee at best. But I think he, he held his own, and I thought the match ended up getting pretty entertaining, you know, with the Exploders and, and all that stuff. And I, I like that, you know, even though, because they, they made a point that Easy Money was fresh, but as soon as Joe got the choke on him, he tapped immediately. And that really put over the choke. So I like that. Um, so I, I thought it was a it was a good match. I, I thought it was average. I, I I think going to what you said about these matches being about you know four ways being a lot of action and stuff. The problem I think I have with that is we also are getting scrambles on every show, and I feel like scramble matches just between the guys they books oftentimes and just the expectation for a scramble often do what these four ways are trying to accomplish like better, like just more of a go 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 big spots. And, you know, it's good when it's Special K and, you know, SAT and guys like that. But, you know, when you see Joe and Homicide in there, I want more than what we got here. Like, it's a bit of a tease. 
I mean, I, I, Joe's absolutely right that when you watch Joe and Homicide, like those segments stick out in this match. You're like, ooh, I want. It just makes you wish you were watching a Joe Homicide match rather than the four way they're stuck in. But I, I don't think it was a bad match. No one did anything wrong. I was surprised how little BJ Whitmer got in this match in terms of offense, just because this is another one of those weird matches where ROH emphasizes the the rankings and they emphasize you know the number one contenders trophy and the top five rankings and the process of getting to the title shot and here you have a number one contenders match it's Samoa Joe's in it okay homicides in it. okay makes sense um easy money while well, he won a four-way on the last show so you, it's acceptable BJ Whitmer this is his second match in the company and he's got a record of 0-1 and Gabe tries to sell it on commentary he's like well Doug Williams walked into a title shot opportunity when he went to road to the title but what that ignores is one Doug Williams had to win two matches that night just to get a title shot and two easy money I mean BJ Whitmer is not Doug Williams <laughs> So I thought that was a little bit of a weak excuse. And then he kept emphasizing like, oh, you know, B.J. Whitmer could make him a star, himself a star in one night. But they kind they give him so little offense at times that it, it kind of makes him look like he doesn't belong here. Like it makes it the way they work the match makes it look like the booking was a mistake because mostly he's just throwing forearms and attempting the same two or three suplexes. And sometimes he hits them, but he's taking more offense from the other guys than anyone else in the match. And there was another point in this match where early on, one guy tags out and another guy comes in and they're both in the ring and they're about to do like a move to the opponent. And Doug Gentry on commentary is like, Ooh, is, is the five-second rule allowed in this match where they can hit a double-team move after they tag out? And the, and Gabe's like, yep, they can. And I'm like, why are you even taking this seriously when you know this four-way and every other four-way ends the same way, which is like the final five minutes is just everyone ignoring tags, everyone walking in and out of the ring with no tags. It's just it's It's a weird thing that bugs me about Ring of Honor where, like I've said before, they take everything seriously when they want to take it seriously. Like in the first part of this match, they're talking about the five second rule. And at the end of the match, it's like any other spot fest where everyone's coming in and no one gives a shit and no one's paying attention. So why even act like have a discussion about the five second rule? It's just, and, but the biggest point, this would be the photo I would use if not for, um, low key and a red kangle. But <laughs> like, like Matt pointed out, um, the, the opening of this match where Easy Money and BJ Whitmer are wrestling, and it's two guys with ponytails of similar st- height and build in purple trunks, where it's just like, I wrote my notes, these guys needed to have a style meeting before the show. Like, both with ponytails and purple trunks, really, like, someone needed to go back into their car. I mean, Easy Money made trunks for a living. Surely he could have just whipped something up on the spot. Yep, give me some cloth and some nylon, and I'll make something. But oh, oh yeah, I forgot about that fact that Easy Money made gear. Yeah, I mean his website I think was last updated in 2015. I think so. Until relatively recently, he was making gear as a side job. Um, yeah, the, the, this is one of those matches where it's hard to have a lot to say about what happened in the match. There just wasn't like a ton of notable things. It was perfectly acceptable wrestling, but I called it blandly competent in my notes. Uh, Joe took a nasty looking neck bump off a suplex. Um, Easy money twisted a guy's nipple while he had him in a submission. (laughs) 
that was that was weird. Um, just a average style match, but yeah, I, I definitely liked it a lot more than you. I, I, I just because I think that Joe and Homicide, like the stuff they do, just ha- just it just clicked so much, and it was so intense, more so than but it was anything such a else tease, on the show. Though. Yeah, but sometimes, we, some, sometimes a tease is good, though. Yeah, I, just give me everything. I, I'm part of the new generation, Matt. I want what I want now, and I want it double. Yeah. I don't want to wait for it. Also, I, liked, I like Easy Money's high spots. I think they're fun. Yeah. Uh, Easy Money, even though I think he's like a mixed bag as a wrestler, he deserved better than what he got in Ring of Honor because the crowds really did seem to like him. And as, as you said, like I think his offense was really tailor-made for the company. Yeah. So I'm. it's weird that... You know, and obviously they thought enough to put him in a four-way like this. And, yeah, he just doesn't – I don't know what happened, if something came up or what, but his reign's almost over in Ring of Honor. But after this, we get uh, the repeat of the Ring of Honor riot, or at least the first repeat. Because before the match, we had a shot of Homicide had a few friends in the front row of the, sh- of the crowd, including Julius Smokes. After the match, Joe is coming – out to ringside and the fans are getting on his case. He gets into it with them, yelling at them. And then all of a sudden, as we see them going to like the back corner of the building, it erupts into a fake ring of honor riot. And this felt like in every way, a pale imitation of the first one. There was less guys. It was held way into the corner of the arena. So there wasn't even as much of a sense of danger that someone could get hurt, which in a way is a good thing, but for the purposes of selling this, not so much. Um, all the same notes were hit, still had Gabe screaming about someone's going to soothe. You had Rob out there, you had, you know, the hit squad and the carnage crew coming out. And it just, it felt like a really pale imitation of the first riot. Also, like, how is it a riot? Like, it was just a bunch of people who got mad at guys who were yelling at Samoa Joe. Like, and then they, they, and then the security made them leave. So it's, it, it did, I mean, it, it didn't really make any sense. Just like, what was everyone so upset about? Like, it was clearly they were Homicide's friends. They're allowed to be there. They were just yelling at Joe like any other fan could do. They didn't hop over the guardrail. They, Joe, if anything, went over to them. So I, I, I just I didn't get what everyone was supposed to be so outraged about. We should really institute a rule where Samoa Joe should be referred to as such because I got really confused the last couple of minutes. Oh, but uh, from my own memory, um, I think one of the Homicide's... Uh, Gang there, I think, uh, nearly knocked me over, rushing over, because that was by the, uh, the entrance area, if memory serves. But if you're wondering what the, I just remember everyone being like, "Well, they just did a riot, so clearly that's what this is." Yeah, even well, though yeah, it, you didn't, you hadn't seen it yet, but you knew about. I hadn't it. seen it yet, but we had heard about it, and clearly, if you know this is happening again, that's what it is. I don't think anyone really, really bought it. And uh, Gabe shrieking uh, <laughs> during this segment will give you nightmares if you go back and. Uh, yeah go back and watch this he is on another he sounds just like the announcer too which is extra humorous do you, do you remember <laughs> do you remember hearing gabe shrieking in person uh, oh yeah i would <laughs> I, I was on the other side of the building i would have uh, would have heard that but yeah <laughs> um, i would I was doing some research listening to Samoa Joe uh, in, a sh- in, a, <laughs> in a shoot interview no problem in a, sorry about before doing an interview and just that remind me 
he was talking about like there was a match much later like in a on a different Ring of Honor show where he cut his hand and he had to like tape it up and he said he could hear Gabe scream from the back while he was trying to work the match and he was just like how weird and off-putting that was like when you can hear Gabe backstage and like the whole crowd can hear Gabe having a tantrum while you're in the ring trying to work a match everyone's supposed to focus on <laughs> so like Gabe's voice apparently carried pretty pretty far yeah um yeah, I, I liked the original Riot if it was aired once, uh, you know, then it would, they aired it three times on the DVD, and that was stupid. This, I thought, was just kind of bad. Yeah, this wasn't even good. The first one was, a, was, I think it's overrated, but it was still an interesting novelty that, you know, isn't, wasn't like most things that were happening on wrestling at that point. But yeah, I, I don't know. I think they imitate it one more time on the next show. I wonder if it really is as simple as Gabe felt like, Every city we run in should get to see a riot. Like we should do, we should do it in New York. Then we're going to Boston, so we got to do it in Boston, and then we got to do it one time in Philly. Like I'm wondering if it was that simple. But it's the variety of the show, like the man on woman violence. Is all part of the- <laughs> gotta have a riot. Gotta have man on woman. Violence. Right. Yep. But what makes it like triply stupid is that at the end of the show, there's a promo, and the guys who were kicked out for rioting are just there in the promo, cutting a promo. <laughs> it's like, how are they different than any other friends that a wrestler brings to get his back? I, I don't. I just. Just no, and then at the beginning of the next match, the announcer's like, I don't even want to talk about it. So yeah, they're like, trying to sell it hard. But there's like, well, then you didn't explain what happened, so it's just confusing. This is akin to when uh, C.W. Anderson did the shoot, like the supposedly like impromptu, not allowed shoot interview in the ring on that show last year. And Gabe was like, you know, edit this off the tape, edit this off the tape. And then on another show, he was like, Doug Gentry forgot to edit it off the tape or something. Like, <laughs> they're trying to make it seem like a shoot while still airing it and trying to come up with the weirdest reasons. Um, the one thing I want to bring up to end on this is we kind of, t- I kind of talked about this on the last show, but this is the time when Dave wrote about it. So I have Dave wrote, oh, actually, when he wasn't writing about Ring of Honor much, it was kind of notable that he wrote this much about the idea of these riot angles. It definitely caught Dave's imagination. So this is from The Observer covering uh, Expect the Unexpected. Dave writes about the riots. This was a bad idea the first time because of two problems. A promotion that does stuff like this spends too much time trying to work fans for the sake of working them, as opposed to working them for the sake of building a match. Second, the illusion of fan violence keeps some spectators from coming because who wants to come to a dangerous environment? Worse, if it does fool people, it encourages real fan violence, which is in nobody's best interest. From live reports, it did look believable, and a lot of people were fooled or at least questioning it. WCW used to do it, and after a few times doing it, they were having problems with real fans hitting the rail, thinking it was okay and a way to get themselves over. In this instance, it is building to something, but apparently not something of any major proportions. So that's Dave talking about, you know, and I do agree with the basic point of like, when you keep doing this, either you're going to you're gonna do one of two things. You're either going to convince fans that, like, it was fake because you keep repeating it, like Joe mentioned, or if you, on the off chance you convince them it's real, now you're basically telling fans, if you go to a Ring of Honor show, a riot's probably going to happen, which I don't think is good for business. Yeah. You bet said uh, it I, all. Yeah. yeah. Especially when this isn't really, like, leading or building to anything. Yeah, that's the other thing, like... I know in a way this is getting to the homicide Steve Carino feud, but really this doesn't feel like the reason that feud's remembered. Like people remember the initial riot because it was noteworthy, but it's not like, oh, we were really anticipating those two great homicide Steve Carino matches because of the riot angles. Like, no, 
people remember the first round. They don't remember even that they repeated it, I think. Now, the main thing that it accomplished was getting Julius Smokes into ROH. Which, in that sense, completely justifies everything. Yes. <laughs> so, but, uh, so finally, we're going to get to, let me just, notes, notes, notes. No, no, that's my note song. Um, Ring of Honor, the main event, the tag team title match, the prophecy of Christopher Daniels and Xavier with Alice in Danger are defeated. They lose the Ring of Honor tag team titles to AJ Styles and the Amazing Red, escorted to the ring by Alexis Lurie. 21 minutes, 11 seconds in this match. When Styles pins Daniels after he hits a Styles clash. Um, Before I give it to you, Matt, Dave and the Observer when talking about the live report said this was reported as a great match. Well, most reports said so, but I've also heard dissenting viewpoints. So, um, what would you, would you agree with the dissenting viewpoints or the positive viewpoints about this match? Uh, somewhere in the middle. I, uh, I guess closer to the dissenting viewpoints. I don't think it was a great match, um, or close. I, uh, you know, uh, the big thing is that very early on Xavier got knocked loopy by a amazing red, uh, like spin kick to the head, and as you noted, Red does seem to have a pattern of hurting people at this point. Like Red, this is three or four now, yeah, in, and, in just the one year. Yeah, and watching this match, you know, Red has clearly gotten better. Like his timing, his ability to be a part of like a, a full match as opposed to just like a spot fest, definitely has gotten better. But you know, if he's hurting people like this, it's not a good sign. Um, that said, uh, there was some good stuff. You know, I liked, you know, early on, you know, some of the pacing and some of the heel spots and stuff. Um, and, you know, working over AJ's neck, which seems to be something that Daniels does every time he works AJ, is he works over his neck. Um, and there were some good double team spots. There was a really cool spot where um, Daniels was working over AJ's neck and Xavier came off, the, like he draped AJ from his, over his uh, shoulder and over the ropes. And then Xavier came off the top rope with a uh, with an elbow drop. I thought that was really cool. Um, you know, just you know, it's good stuff. The thing is, the neck work never really played in. It's not like AJ really sold it when he was on offense. And I do think Xavier being kind of out of it. You know, he'd there'd be periods where he'd look like he was kind of back in the swing of things, and then there'd be periods where he was just sort of seemed lost. Um, so he'd kind of like go in and out of, um, you know, I guess um, he'd go in and out of being lucid. And uh, that, you know, made the match awkward. I think Daniels did a good job, but I just thought the pace was very badly hurt. You know, maybe it wouldn't have been, maybe it would have been the same thing anyway, but I think that I can, uh, it's, you know, it's fair to blame it on the fact that one of the participants was, like, basically knocked loopy. It's weird to watch now. You know, where they're talking about, oh, he definitely has a concussion, but it's, like, only, like, a semi-big deal, whereas we know now <laughs> it's a really huge deal. Hashtag wrestling woke. And um, <laughs> I... Uh, I, I, I don't know. I just, um, you know, down the stretch, you know, there's some cool stuff. You know, uh, I thought, like I said, I thought Daniels looked really good. He would hit the STO on AJ, then a, then a choke slam on Red. He hit the best moonsault ever on Red. Koji clutch on AJ, but Red broke it up. Um, then hit the Angels wings. Red breaks it up. Styles clash on Daniels. Xavier makes the save, but he's too late. And that's the finish. Um, the finish was very awkward. Um, because, and even as in, in Daniel's promo at the end, he was like, what the hell was that three count? Like, like AJ, like red was on the top rope and Daniel and AJ hit the styles clash. And so red stayed on the top rope while, while Xavier tried to save. And it seemed like he saved 
like before the three count, but they still counted the three count. It was very awkward. So it was a weird finish. Um, so I thought the match settled on pretty good um, because of all that stuff. But uh, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> uh, Joe, I was just going to ask first before we – I want Joe's thoughts next, but I was just going to ask Joe. Um, when you talk about this, since you were there live, could you tell that something was wrong with Xavier? Uh, not quite in that, because he's still, it's not like he sat out a lot of the match. Like, you, you can see on the camera, Daniel's like, whoa, you okay? And then he still worked long stretches of the match. It wasn't obvious something, he was, you know, he was knocked to loopy or, or anything like that. The finish does take this down, because you can tell the crowd's like, like, oh, 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 okay. Like, instead of that big pop you want for a, a title change, in a company that did not change titles all that often at this point. This is, I mean, besides the crowning of the champions, uh, there's been one other title change, you know, in the year the company had been around. The, the match itself, it was, it was okay. It was certainly hurt. I know it, there was a spot down the stretch where AJ and Xavier tagged in. It's almost like the match reset. It just kind of ground to a halt, and then the weird finish kind of took it down a peg. But there was certainly some some good things in here. What I think kind of hurt it was Red being substituted for Paul London, and, and the commentary tried to like make it like Red had some issue with the, the prophecy, like, oh, he faced Xavier in the, the title tournament, and he teamed with uh, Jay against uh, Mark and Christopher Daniels when, you know, I think if, if Paul London had been here and scoring a big win after being denied twice trying to win the Ring of Honor title, I think it would have worked a lot better, and you know, I, I, I can't, you know, I guess it would have been a better match with Paul London in there, I can't say for certain, given what happened with Xavier and all that, but I mean, pretty good, but, uh, you know, ultimately not quite what you were hoping for. Yeah, I thought this was just topped out at good, not even, like, very good. And I, um, this kind of was reminiscent of the AJ and Loki versus Daniels and Xavier match that was a couple shows ago, where I felt like the, the pace was good and they worked real hard, but there was just something kind of soulless to the match. There wasn't a ton of story to it. And obviously with this match, any complaints I give are going to be a bit more forgivable because I don't know how much Xavier getting hurt changed this match. But... Maybe, I don't know, it's funny because, like, in a lot of ways, AJ Styles and Christopher Daniels have impressed me more on this rewatch from this era than I remembered. But at the same time, there was times I remembered some of their matches where there was something that I got this feeling where it's like, the work, like, it's a good pace, they're working hard, but there's just something I'm missing. And I've had less of those feelings than I remembered, but this match is one of those matches that brought me back to that. Uh Another big spot was Amazing Red dove into the crowd and, like, landed in the first row, which looked kind of crazy and dangerous. I mean, Red now, when I watch him, like, he's a captivating wrestler because knowing the number of people he's hurt and his own injury problems, like, everything he does, I'm like, <gasps> over and over again. That, that's because I'm having an asthma attack. But, um, ah. Uh, I think the thing we should get to that you brought before, Matt, was saying that we'd get to the tag title thing later. Gabe in this match, like, calls down his own tag belts. Like, when he talks about, like, uh, Xavier and Daniels bringing the tag belts, he's going, you know, this promotion needs to get rid of those crappy-looking belts. They need new ones. Like, he's shitting on his own belts, which is one of the little joys you get when a booker's doing commentary because he can see say things a real com a regular untied commentator couldn't say without fear of being fired. Yeah, exactly. But 
I, I think the, the they, other thing they are really bo- bad tag belts though like really bad <laughs> the, the thing that bugged me a little bit about this match was again there's not a lot of like story it's just guys tagging it out working hard well, they, like, like I said they worked AJ's neck but and like Daniels always works AJ's neck it's weird like they had three like three two of their singles matches he worked the neck then in this match he worked the neck but it doesn't usually factor into anything that happens later it's weird because um, Christopher Daniels, in a shoot interview, he's talking about the heat sequence of this match. And I'm like, there wasn't really that long of a heat se- sequence or wasn't really that major part of the that major a part of the match. And it's just there, there, there's something missing. It, it, it's solid action. Um, Did you find the also- finish to be weird also? Yes, because not only is it just the diving thing, but like you pointed out, Amazing Red standing on the top. So again, to go over it, Amazing Red's, uh, you know, um, Daniels is trying to superflex Amazing Red. AJ gets up behind him, grabs him, puts him in the Styles Clash, hits it. Xavier tries to break up the pin, but it's supposed to be the pin, so the ref just ignores it. But the whole time, a red is standing on the turnbuckle. And to me, one of my pet peeves in wrestling is when a guy stands on the turnbuckle and never does anything off of the turnbuckle. It's almost like the old thing Anton Chekhov said about plays where if like, if there's a gun in act one of a play, it has to be fired in act three. Like it was just weird to see red watching the finish from the turnbuckle standing there, not doing anything, which almost makes me wonder if maybe the finish was supposed to be like Xavier coming in, and then Red hitting something on it and to, like, stop him from interfering. I don't even know. It just seemed really weird even in that sense. And I actually have a little bit of Daniel's and AJ's thoughts on this because there is a shoot interview they did together, and they talk about this match. In fact, when they bring it up, the first thing that they do is AJ immediately screams, Xavier! Because apparently that's what they were shouting to him during the match to try and get his attention. And Daniel says they didn't really know he was concussed. That He says that um, he was actually mad after the match, like when he went backstage, because he thought Xavier was just being forgetful. In fact, he says there's a point in this match where he was getting the heat on one of the faces, and he tags Xavier in, and he says, Xavier kept asking, what should I do now? What should I do now? And Daniel said, I was like telling him, do whatever you want. It's like your section of the match. Like he, like Daniels is just wondering, like, why is this guy forgetting everything? And then he says, I went to the backstage, and then AJ was with Xavier, and he told me, Xavier doesn't know what city he's in right now. So, like, it's just a weird thing where he was so apparently out that, like, he didn't know where he was to the point where when Samoa Joe talks about beating Xavier the next week in a shoot interview, he says, like, he was just trying to help Xavier get through, through the match. So, like, a serious concussion, Yeesh. yet... Yet he kept going through most of the match. You don't really, like, you can tell a little bit at points that he's not doing great. But a lot of this match, I was surprised on rewatch. Like, he's in a lot of this match and executing things. And he doesn't look that lost until near the end. There are moments, like I said, where he looks like he's out of it. Then he snaps back into it. Then he looks out of it again. That's how, it, that's how I took it anyway. But yet, like, his own partner didn't even, doesn't even realize, like... Again, he just said, I thought he was forgetful. I thought he was, he kept asking, what should we do? And I thought he was just forgetting what, what was going on. Like well, the finish. They, they show his eyes shortly after it. You know, they show him like talking to Daniels on the outside. And it seemed really obvious. Like that's a guy who's concussed. 
And it's one of those Gabe things, too, where we've talked about this before, where the second an injury happens, Gabe instantly knows, like, ooh, look how hard he hit him. And <laughs> then for the rest of the match, it's like, oh, look how glassy his eyes are. He definitely has a concussion. Like, But, but, his, just, eyes, but his eyes were. Like, I saw that on the commentary. Like, he really did look like he had a concussion. Like, when they first showed his eyes over, like, when he was on the outside, he looked like he was in a daze. Part of me wonders if he got hurt more later in the match, like what we've learned now about concussions, where the thing that can really be bad is not the initial concussion. It can be like the extra blow you take before your brain is healed, because I was kind of wincing. There were some fairly stiff, like clotheslines and leg lariats he was taking from AJ Styles during this match after he had taken the big red kick that concussed him. And Again, he looks like in and out of it, but near the end of the match, it's like something changes. And for the last few minutes of the match, Xavier is just hanging on the ropes while Daniels basically wrestles the match one-on-two the rest of the way until the end. Like, it made for a weird story of the match because the last few minutes it's like they're trying to do their big like everyone in the ring hitting big move sequence but because Xavier's just hanging on the ropes and can't get in the ring it's Daniels taking on the baby faces one on two and winning for a while and then eventually the numbers game catches up on him like the optics of it ended up being kind of weird but I wonder if maybe Xavier just got hurt again and got to this point where it was like he didn't know what was going on. He could just hold onto the ropes. He couldn't really get in the ring. He didn't know what he was supposed to be doing. Like, because definitely, as you were saying, he was going in and out. He seemed like dramatically worse in that last few minutes. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely plausible. But, you know, it's I've never had a concussion as far as I know, luckily, but it seems terrible. And Dave says the reason they took the belts off Daniels and Xavier here was that at this point, Ray of Honor was still planning to turn Daniels to babyface with the feud against Carino. And so they felt like for that reason, it was necessary to lift the tag belts off of him just, I guess, because they didn't want him to have the belts mid-turn, I, I guess. But also, the, the entire time they had the tag belts, the tag belts were barely a thing. So you might as well get it onto a team that actually would have, like, matches. And it's worth noting how bad, like, like how bad the tag division got off the ground. Because think about it. Um, the first champions are Donovan Morgan and Daniels. Donovan Morgan, because of Japan, barely ever works for Ring of Honor or defends the belts. So then the belts are lost by Daniels to... Um, by Daniels and Xavier to AJ and Red, who themselves won't, like, last as a team during their reign. So... Really, the division doesn't get off the ground for quite a while. It, like, a really bumpy start. But, yeah, as a match, good match, not great. And it was also a little disappointing that they uh, the, there was, they didn't really get any time for celebration. As Joe was saying, this is this, only the second time since they put, like, crowned the initial champions that a title has changed. I think this was supposed to be, like, AJ and Paul London when Paul London was in the match. Their big, like, moment of revenge. Like, yeah, we kept losing to Xavier, but we got them back here. But when they win the titles, they cut to the back pretty quickly. And I thought that was a little disappointing. To the back. But to the back and to the back first a couple more promos to end the show uh backstage homicide cuts a show promo a short promo on carino's crew he says he has his own guys to back him up and he's ready for for war some of homicide's posse then show up including becky bayless for the first time and julius smokes smokes cuts his first ever roh promo and he's wondering what's up with low key why is he acting funny again this is kind of 
continuing the the angle they were planting in the on the last show where Carino hinted that Loki would be joining his group, like this idea of can Homicide trust Loki? Homicide tells Smokes not to worry about that. And then Julius Smokes does cuts a classic Julius Smokes promo, which I can only describe as it's a promo made up of nothing but 800 catchphrases. It's just him saying one thing after another. It's great. It probably sounded then, especially cool the first time you heard it. Then he said all those he said all those things in every other promo he ever did. Also. <laughs> yeah. And then Homicide ends by he tells Crino that World War Three has just begun. And we got another promo where Gabe is backstage with a handheld camera, and he's looking for Christopher Daniels and. Quiet Storm tells him he's probably over there. Over there turns it out to be by an oven, like where I guess they make the concessions. He's sitting, and Gabe asks him for a promo to end the DVD. Daniel says he's in no mood. He's pissed about the finish. He's pissed about losing the tag titles. He ends up chasing Gabe out of the room. And then the very last promo on the show it's extremely poorly lit CM Punk in a dark room with a fan that's running that's as loud as his voice. Um, let's see what it, Punk says his hobby is crushing the human spirit, which I guess means Punk couldn't play with me because I'm already used up in that respect. Mm. Uh, wah, wah, wah. But I'm, I'm with you, I'm with you, buddy. <laughs> Joe's right for the picking, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, he announces that his next Ring of Honor match will be him and Ace Steel versus Raven and Colt Cabana. Punk goes on kind of an interesting little r- promo here where he talks about. Hey, where he goes, hey, I can trust Ace Steel. Ace Steel trained me, so I can trust him. But your team with Colt Cabana, who I feuded with, but has also been one of my closest friends, who I trained together with. He, so his whole thing is he's, he's framing the next match as, I have a partner I can trust. You can't trust your partner. And Punk says the match will be held in Philly, where a lot of people say Raven was born. And he says that's also where Raven will die. He does Raven's pose and says, you can quote me on that, never more. And this was actually my favorite CM Punk promo so far of the short ROH run he's had. Because he got off some good one-liners. He framed the story of the next match. And he's just that right mix of kind of cocky and conniving. And yeah, I thought this was, I thought this was a good promo. It was solid, yeah. Um, nothing too special, but pretty good. Yeah, he did a good job considering he was apparently in a cave somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and that will wrap up Expect the Unexpected. So, guys, what did you think looking back at this show? Uh, I thought it was a so-so show overall. There's nothing really great here, like nothing you need to see. I enjoyed watching the show. There's good stuff on here. It was never boring. Even the bad stuff is kind of interesting in its own way. But I think the show benefits from historical significance. And I mean, besides the tag title change, we had the first shot in the CM Punk Raven feud and Samoa Joe being put in a position to go after the world title. And we're right on the cusp of the Ring of Honor that people really remember so fondly that made people want to start podcasts to look back at it 15 years later. Matt, what did you think? Yeah, I, I agree with Joe. I um, I, I will say it's worth noting, even though this show did not have any high-end like matches, it's still in a lot of ways easier to watch than some of the earlier shows that did. So they've done a lot of good work to get the pacing, you know, to where it's like the shows are entertaining even if they're not particularly great. And that's what I would say about this. It's an entertaining watch. I don't think it's anything, you know, that I'd like desperately recommending to anybody and there was nothing great on it i actually thought my favorite match was probably the one that you guys didn't like the four-way um and the mm. joe and the joe versus punk i mean not the joe 
uh, sorry, Joe, not the Samoa Joe mm. versus CM Punk match, but the Raven <laughs> versus CM Punk match I thought was good too. Um, and probably the opener was probably one of the best matches as well. Um, the Matt versus Chad Collier match. Um, but I, um, <laughs> but, but I, you know, I still, I still didn't have a bad time watching it. It's, you know, it's still to the point where it's a solid promotion now, but not, not one of their best efforts. I agree, especially with you, Matt, on the, like, in some ways, this is one of their weaker shows in the sense of I, I wouldn't even have a match on the show I would put at very good, let alone great. But at the same time, there's something about the pacing and the structure, and they've gotten enough, like, these shows have a forward momentum even when the wrestling isn't great now in a way that some of the other shows, it was just like they were going to live and die on if there was great matches. And this isn't a, a show I would recommend buying. Like, it's not worth the money unless you really are into the historical thing, the aspects that Joe mentioned, or you're a completist. But at the same time, I would say if this was just like an episode of if Arwitch was like a raw, like a three-hour weekly TV show, you wouldn't hate this episode. Like, you go, no, that was an okay watch. There, there was enough good action, and it advanced storylines, and some significant, significant things happened, and the crowd was good. So, one of the weaker shows, but again, it had a it had a feeling where I still came out of it wanting to watch the next show. And the next show will be Night of Champions... And that's going to have some big things on. It's going to have the first ever tag match, Briscoe's tag match in Ring of Honor. It's going to have Low Key versus Jody Fleisch. It's going to have the start of the Samoa Joe as champion era, which is you know the biggest thing. And that pretty much does it for the show. I want to wish happy. I, I do want to ask Joe one question before you wrap up. Um, okay. Yeah, I know you're in you're in the wrap up mode, but I no 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 no. I should have asked if there's anything left. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Um, I'm horrible. Joe. Joe, um, so you went to ROH shows, you know, from the beginning all the way through, you know, you said 2007. What, what would you say was different about the live? How did the live experience change? Like, was, did the crowd change at all? Did the pacing change at all from when you first went to when you stopped going? I don't think the pacing or anything really changed. Our Ring of Honor certainly grew in that time. And it's just kind of hard to say that, uh, I think there was just kind of a, a sense of burnout with everyone where we, you know, seen a lot of the same guys for so long and, you know, seen so much of the promotion for so long and buying, not just attending shows, but buying so many DVDs. You know, there was still good stuff, but there was just kind of a sense of uh, kind of been there, done that in a way. Yeah, it's and like, I, it's like. I, I do want to add, I still, I still go to, I went to the the pay-per-view where Cody won the the title this year. I still go. They had like a five-year break. They did not run in Massachusetts. Oddly enough, considering that was one of the, the that was the first place they expanded to. Yeah, it was the, it was their second ever market. It's weird how it became such a like a, yeah when it when it was one of the first place they thought to expand to. Well, Philly sort of Philly sort of became an afterthought at certain points too, which is even more interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, I've been to ROH shows in the past year too, but I sort of don't think of them as the same promotion. You know, it's like, not. No, yeah. not. I mean, to like 2007 where I stopped going, it was still. Gabe was still booking. It, it's a different beast. It has its strength. I, I enjoy it, I have to say. But it's not, no, it's not even the same universe it used to be. Yeah, I mean, we could, we could talk about current ROH, you know, with probably its own podcast. But, um, but yeah, I just thought it was interesting because, again, I don't talk to too many people that really have that experience. Because I didn't start going to ROH Live until 2005, and by then it was already, you know, pretty established what it was. 
So I don't. I didn't get that. I didn't see the change from the very early days. Yeah. That, is there anything else we should talk about, or is that about no, it? No. I've, I'm yeah. so, uh, sorry about that. No, 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 no. I'm. I'm glad you did. I thought that was good. Uh, that's something I should remind myself to always check in first because I try and rush things. Um, I will again say happy holidays to everybody. Uh, thank you so much, Joe, for being our first guest, for being so gracious on a Saturday night when you have, I'm sure, other things you could be doing to no, come I and don't. do the show. <laughs> I really don't. Well, join, well, I can sit on my couch or I'll sit on my couch and talk to you. Well, join the club, well, Joe. <laughs> th- right. Thank you so much. Um, I want to thank everybody. As always, if you want to write us, we got some great emails this week through the years at gmail.com. At Trevor Dame on Twitter, at Mayor MGF on Twitter, at Joe Gagney on Twitter. And again, remember, five-star match game at the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. And remember, Joe versus the World, new episode with, with Justin Shapiro. I can't wait to listen to that. I've been saving that for, like, this weekend. I can't wait to listen to that. Thank you, everybody. Happy holidays. Be safe. If you drink eggnog and it's got rum in it, be careful when you go out driving. Love y'all. See you next year. Thanks, everybody, for everything.